Hey, this is Daryl. We have a long show for you today. I believe it's an hour and 45 minutes there or thereabouts. I will put timestamps in the show notes if you need to skip around. But I promise it's all good stuff. We've got some updates on the Premier League. We've got a Bundesliga preview and we have historical profiles of five great Teams. We've got Celtic from 67. We've got Milan from 88. We've got Stour Book Arrest from the 80s. We've got Red Star Belgrade of the early 90s. And we've got the Bayern Munich team of the 70s. All five of them are fascinating teams, but only two can go through to the next round in the Champions Champions Cup of history. We're publishing this show on Thursday. Also a reminder that today, the second episode of Football with Grant Wall has been published. It's Grant talking to Julie Foudy. Julie Foudy has a great take on what's going on with the US women's national team right now. I would encourage you to go and listen to Football with Grant Wall. Coming up tomorrow on Friday, in the very feed you're listening to right now, we'll have a new episode of Allocation Disorder with Sam Steschkel and Paul Tenorio. Those guys will have updates for you on what's going on with the Major League Soccer plan to have the tournament in Orlando that's basically going to be the MLS 20. 20 season. So check back tomorrow for all your Major League Soccer updates. Today's show is sponsored by Remarkably Remote, a new microcast from GoToMeeting. How has working from home been going for you, they want to know. Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's, quote, new normal, unquote. In just three minutes or less, Remarkably Remote will share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So so check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's always ready to return to action. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello, my friend. I wish that were the case. Sometimes I get sleepy. Sometimes I get tired. But generally, I'm ready to return to action. That's true. If you, if you could play soccer right now, would you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Even in the rain. I love the rain. I think we could do some socially distanced, like, uh, long passing, right? Yeah, I think so. I've had yeah. that invitation, but then like I get nervous about, I don't know, sweat and bumping into people and stuff like that. So, so far, no passing, but maybe hopefully in the future. No, I'm talking like if we're, we're like 100 yards away from each other and we're pinging long balls and we, we oh, disinfect the ball before and after. <laughs> um, in that case, yeah, I think we're good. I think we're good. <laughs> maybe we'll set that up in the future. <laughs> um, the Premier League, Taylor, there's a bit of news here for you. The Premier League is inching towards returning to action. Um, they voted this week and they have returned to small group training as of this past Tuesday. Woo! That's, that's very exciting in that we have people doing active things in England again as opposed to, I don't know, uh, breaking curfew and doing illegal things. Yeah, there are still some yeah some players, including a Wolves player, Morgan Gibbs White. They they've been out and about when they when they shouldn't be. But these players are allowed to go to the training grounds in small groups of no more than five. Taylor, no more than five, and sessions must be no longer than seventy five minutes for each. And they've got a social distance while they're doing it. And twice a week they have to be tested for coronavirus. But this is similar to what Germany did maybe a month or so ago, right? As they got ready, or maybe six weeks ago, as they got ready to start thinking about returning to action. Yes. And I mean, and it's, it's still like, 
maybe this is just me, but like I do have that faith in, in the Germans to have like abided by the system. Maybe I just have a little more faith in Angela Merkel than Boris Johnson. But either way, uh, I'm hoping <laughs> that yeah, the the right protocols are in place, the procedures are being followed, and maybe we get some uh, English soccer uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, but for now, I'll content myself with Bundesliga soccer. All right. One one thing worth noting with England, mm-hmm. uh, before we talk Bundesliga, right? Yeah. There's more Bundesliga to watch this weekend. Um, there have been some players who, players and staff who have tested positive. I think there were six positive tests um, when they did sort of uh, the about 40 uh, squad members, staff members and squad members per team. There were six total positive tests. And there have also been some players like Troy Deeney of Watford who have said, I'm not going back in. Mm. Um, Troy, Troy Deeney's example was I've got um, a five-month-old with uh, breathing difficulties. I'm not going to go and risk getting that virus and bringing it back home. And the thing that I really like about this is Watford have said, yeah, that's fine. I totally understand. Yeah, um, which and is Conte at Chelsea, yeah, he, he's been told if he doesn't want to come in because he doesn't want to, it's fine. You don't have to. So I quite like this idea of we're going to inch towards returning to action. Anyone who's not comfortable, we're not going to fine you. We're not going to publicly pressure you. I think this is the right approach that everyone can be kind of happy with. I, I think it is. I think it is. And I think it, the, those players deserve massive credit because at the end of the day, like they're professional athletes. That tends to lend itself to a sort of alpha personality uh, that yeah. doesn't necessarily want to be weak or vulnerable. And and that is a big issue, as we know, with mental health and footballers kind of bottling stuff up. But here, yeah. like, you you know, like, Daryl, I know it's been a while since you were in like a corporate office job, but you know that tone of like, well, if you think you're too sick to come in, like, I guess you are. <laughs> like, And so I think it's it's to their credit. That they both kind of probably resisted some of that passive aggressiveness and instead sort of stuck to their guns, or at least Tridini is sticking to his guns. Uh, I'm less familiar with N'Golo Conte's situation, but I do think that that's a commendable decision uh, and just makes me like Tridini all the more. I think Troydini has had family members who've, uh, you know, died from heart conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, so he's just a bit wary about his health. This is what I read. And Frank Lampard just gave the whole thing his blessing. Like, hey, N'Golo, if you don't want to come in, don't don't come in. It's good. I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, find someone better to replace him? They're I, not, are they? <laughs> well, for a moment, they're speaking of replacing people. <laughs> I, I forgot that you had transitioned to talk about N'Golo Kante. And I was like, Troydini plays for Chelsea? <laughs> like, how did we not talk about that? When did that go down? <laughs> the famous Pulisic-Dini uh, partnership. <laughs> Man, That's one other bit of news. Uh, Mm. Christian Pulisic, I think, from what I read, is back training with Chelsea, uh, which means his adductor is healed. So Pulisic has healed during the break. So if if the Premier League and Chelsea do get back to action sometime in June, we may see Pulisic back on the field. So thanks, coronavirus? I mean, silver linings, right? <laughs> yeah. Silver linings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we still don't know about, uh, uh, forgive me for continuously pushing us to Bundesliga, but speaking of American wingers, we still don't know the situation with Gio Reyna, do we? Because some outlets were like, oh, he's no. back in training. And some were like, nope, he's, he had to have his leg removed. I have searched and searched and searched mm-hmm. and searched. I didn't see the amputation one. I'm assuming that's not <laughs> factual. Um, but yeah, some, some, some outlets have said he's in training. Some have said he's not training with Dortmund yet. Um, essentially, the, but these were all non-official outlets as well, right? There is nothing from the club. And that's the only thing you can ultimately trust, mm-hmm. right? Is if the club say, Gio Reyna's back in training or Gio Reyna's part of the matchday squad or uh, here's a photo of Gio Reyna <laughs> dribbling with the ball. Like, none of that has come out, so we just don't know. So, this Saturday morning, mm-hmm. when Dortmund um, go away to Wolfsburg, 9.30am on Fox Sports 1, we don't know if Gio Reyna will be involved. Shall we move to talk about Saturday's Bundesliga games? Then? Actually, now I want to talk about England some more. Yes, that's fine. Let's talk about the Bundesliga. Let's, let's do it. Actually, I said Saturday. If, you, if you're desperate mm-hmm. for some soccer, um, Friday afternoon, there's the Berlin derby. Hertha Berlin 
Union Berlin, 2.30 Eastern on Fox Sports 2. And I have a like mixed emotions message on this one because there is a really good uh, Copa 90 uh, Derby Days episode about this precise Derby. I think recorded at a time when maybe they were either only one was in the Bundesliga or maybe neither one was. Uh, but it gives you a good insight into like the personality and character of Berlin. Obviously, that won't matter as much since you won't have all of the fans yeah, no that fans. you would have otherwise. Yeah. But at least it gives you an idea of the importance of that derby, which is maybe not one that jumps off the page right away. Like They were yeah. definitely leading with this one on the schedule because they expected it to be sort of a boisterous atmosphere. Uh, so that probably won't be the case. But it could still be a very good game from the like drama player versus player side of things. Honestly, it'll be a live game and also I'll be that. watching. <laughs> Speaking of fans, before yeah. we talk about the rest of the Bundesliga, um, there's a story that I mentioned just before we started recording that I was going to surprise you with because mm-hmm. uh, we hadn't discussed it or you know put it on the bullet points of what we're going to talk about. Um, there's a story coming out today that there's a Danish team, mm. AGF Aarhus, mm-hmm. um, is going to have screens in its stadium and fans can log in via Zoom um, if you get a ticket, um, and you can you can like quote unquote sit in various sections and cheer on the team via Zoom. Okay, that's kind of solid. I think. Yeah. I don't know how good the camera right? is. I hope it's a decent view. I mean, it'll be yeah, that'll be weird. Right? You might have to have a two screen experience, right? Where maybe you're watching on TV on one screen, and then you're uh, you're sort of projecting yourself using your laptop or whatever. It'll be interesting to see if that works because that could be a thing that. Um, if this continues, this no fans soccer, this could be a potential, I'm not going to say solution, I'm going to say half solution <laughs> to add some atmosphere to the stadium. Do you think this one is a more effective version than the Korean sex doll version? It is. I'm convinced that that Korean sex doll thing was a marketing yeah. exercise. They absolutely Actually, knew what they were doing. Yeah. I have a friend here. Uh, you've met him, Brian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we he runs a marketing company, Evergib. If you're looking for any uh, any marketing, they they can help you out. Um, he, I mean, he said like the the tags were still on the dolls, yeah. right? The of the company. It's definitely a big marketing gimmick. I'm not even going to say the name of the company because I don't want to uh, I don't want to fall into the trap of talking about it and helping market the sex dolls. I think that that's fair because yeah, like if you're looking to fill up your stadium with mannequins, like I feel like you would search mannequins, and even then somebody would be like, no, that's a terrible show. We're not or a terrible well, idea. We're not doing it that. it was a mistake or an accident right? uh-huh sure 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 sure, yeah. sure 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 it was a it was a sponsorship opportunity um i'm pretty can, sure can you do me um, one quick favor before I, I i lose my mind yeah I, and i'm happy to talk through it i know agf arhus and i think an american played there did benny failhaber ever play at agf arhus i mean arhus? you can make me google it now right all right I, I will do that i just know that you tend to be a more discreet tapper on the keyboard than i uh, usually, if I'm using my uh, computer during recording, you can hear it, and it comes right through. Daryl, however, he's he's a ninja typer. The secret, the secret is to use your phone because ah. your phone you can just you can just bosh with. Ah, your but phone. as you know, the answer is the answer hmm? is yes. From yes. 2008 to 2011, Benny Fireharbor played for AGF Arhus. There we go. As you know, as is protocol, my phone is on the other side of the room because no matter <laughs> what I do, it somehow still makes noises or goes off or distracts me. So my phone stays away from me when we record and since you mentioned benny we should mm-hmm. mention his podcast oh yeah the bsi podcast that benny fire does with salzazo and ike apara and they have some great guests on there uh, really good interviews we talked about it when we did the uh there was the darlington nagby news right where he basically talked about why he didn't want to play for the u.s national team yep. in Concacaf away qualifiers so we recommend the bsi podcast uh, with benny sal and ike we certainly do and as always i will reiterate mostly because ike likes parks and rec and i'm good with that <laughs> More than the office, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I've been... Okay, quick sidebar. Lots of sidebars today. We've got so much to talk about. We really today. do. It's going to be a four-hour um, show. 
you're always pushing me to watch The Office, right? Uh-huh. So um, I finally like we got back into it last night, me and my wife, watching The Office mm-hmm. on Netflix. I still like it, middle of season two, but I feel like there's going to be, there's a point where like everybody becomes more likable, right? At what point does everybody become more likable? Where are you again? Middle of season two. Likeable is a word. Uh, Because it's like with anything, the more you learn about the characters, the more you like, but also there's aspects you don't like. I think season three is where it really hits its stride. I think season three and season four, I think are usually like seen as the (laughs) the better ones. If I ask you this question during season three, you'll be like, oh, season four is when it gets really good. Well, so he's going to lead me through the whole I thing. I think because season one and two are still like there's very strong shadows of the of the British office and then they get yeah. like sort of weaker, but there's still the sort of basic narrative there. Season three is sort of when I think they go off in their own direction, whereas it basically is kind of when the branch uh, shuts down in the, in the British office, like it takes a different detour and I'll leave it at that. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. Well, we're going to keep watching. We're going to keep watching. All right. Um, um, okay, so Saturday's games in the Bundesliga. And also, Nate will eventually show up, and I can't wait for you to meet Nate. He'll make you very happy. I'll let you know when Nate shows up. <laughs> um, Saturday morning, he won't be showing up, because not. on my TV will be either Borussia Mönchengladbach versus Bayer Leverkusen, which is a 9.30 a.m. kickoff, or the aforementioned Wolfsburg versus Borussia Dortmund. Uh, the Wolfsburg-Dortmund game is on Fox Sports 1. The uh, Mönchengladbach-Leverkusen game is on Fox Sports 2. I'll DVR both, right? Because we're yeah. going to review probably probably both of those games. Which one would you be watching live? Of all of the games or of the ones you just mentioned? Of those two. Those two that I just mentioned. See, ah, that's really difficult. It's tough, right? I will probably start with Wolfsburg Dortmund. And then if certain people aren't involved, I will probably quickly switch <laughs> to uh, Gladbach Leverkusen. <laughs> Certain people who are related to uh, U.S. national team players, uh, both their mother and their father. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> All right. John Brooks could be playing for Wolfsburg. It depends mm-hmm. how much they hold that own goal against him. Or not not actually own goal, but basically own goal. Own assist from yeah. last week. And then the other, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, we'll see. I think he's probably going to play. But as we've learned yeah. in the past, when we used to, do you remember way back when we used to watch like specific games for the, just like the one American that was there? Uh, yeah. Looking directly at Timmy Chandler when I say that. <laughs> uh, we had that one where we were going to watch uh, Frankfurt Bayern and then he got injured in the first 12 minutes. Watching a defender, like watching a game solely for a defender is not always the best idea, though you would expect that Dortmund will probably put them under a decent amount of pressure. So maybe you would get to see John Brooks in a sort of yeah. last-ditch defender scenario well, i'm gonna frame it for you narrative style mm-hmm. um it's john brooks against erling Haaland. i i don't love that matchup <laughs> i don't think anyone has been matched up against erling Haaland, right i would also um i would also pitch this game as again dortmund are the team best placed to challenge bayern for the title right they're the yeah. team that's only four points behind and they are just brilliant to watch right julian brandt is absolutely mm-hmm. Um, on top of the world right now. Uh, Togan Hazard's playing playing really, really well. So Dortmund are just enjoyable to watch right now. So there's that element to it. Yes. But Mönchengladbach and Leverkusen, Mönchengladbach are, what, third? Mm-hmm. So they're only, what, two points behind Dortmund. And then Leverkusen are in fifth spot, one point behind RB Leipzig. So they're also, you know, obviously looking to win games so that they can get into that top four. Essentially, Mönchengladbach, Leverkusen, two really exciting teams, lots of really exciting players like Turam. Um, but they've also got both got a lot to play for. So... Yeah. I'm going to say watch both games if you can. Use yeah, the DVR. So. You should, everyone should have a DVR by now. Right? And if you want to see Kai Havertz uh, play for a team that isn't Bayern Munich or Manchester City, uh, then this would be the opportunity. <laughs> Now's the time mm-hmm. to do it. Um, if you're not familiar, Kai Havertz plays 
basically centre forward or attacking midfield or somewhere in the attack, depending on where they want to use him. Wherever he plays for Bayer Leverkusen, the man is magnificent, right? Two goals last week in Leverkusen's yeah. big win. Kai Havertz um, at this point yeah. is sort of like anybody in a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. Like, you could be really, really, really good. He's still probably going to win the Oscar and you're not. And it's like <laughs> Kai Havertz is having this incredible season that everybody would be talking about. Just Holland is so good, they're not. Daniel Day Havertz. There you go. You Perfect. Um, at 12.30 mm-hmm. p.m., Fox Sports 1 on Saturday, Bayern Munich hosting Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, obviously big because if you want to see Bayern not win the title, then you want to see whether they win or not. I will say, I um, I didn't watch it at the time. I watched afterwards uh, Bayern's first game. I've forgotten who they played now this uh, this past uh, weekend. Union Berlin. Did you review? Yeah, played Union Berlin. Mm-hmm. I am fascinated by the way Bayern Munich play soccer. It is like a... Mm-hmm. It's like a Guardiola-ish positional play, but it's a lot more aggressive in terms of how they move the ball forward. And I'm still convinced that Thiago is the liveliest midfielder in the world right now. Yeah. So I've started to um, not just start rooting against Bayern because I want other teams to win the Bundesliga. I've started to just watch Bayern and at least appreciate and admire what they're doing and recognize that this is a great soccer team. But Daryl, if people wanted to understand how Bayern became a great soccer team and more specifically how they've had the sustained success they have, how could they do that? How could they find that out in like a short, maybe like hour long period of time? 55 minutes, I believe. Um, I wasn't planning to plug this. Nor was I. But yeah, there was a new episode of Soccer 101 published very recently, mm-hmm. and it was Taylor interviewing uh, Manuel Veit mm-hmm. of Transfermarkt um, about the big question, why do Bayern keep winning the Bundesliga? Yeah. Why has nobody managed to catch up with Bayern Munich in Germany? Um, it's a long conversation with a lot of answers because I think there are a lot of reasons. I found the sort of generational um, argument Manuel makes towards the end of that show mm-hmm. Really, really convincing. Essentially, this is interesting, the golden generation of Mm -hmm. Bayern, who we're going to talk about on today's show when we profile the Bayern Munich team of the 70s, they're the generation that's still in charge at Bayern, right? They're all over the front office. Um, So it's essentially all about that one generation of players. And I find it really interesting to think of what happens when that generation is too old and like the next generation has to take over in the Mm -hmm. front office. I mean, but that's I think he kind of kind of answers at least his theory on that, which is essentially just that. Yeah, I mean, if if they're steeped in the tradition, it stands to reason they would continue to be steeped in that tradition. But I guess that is maybe a podcast for 20 years from now when we know when we find out if that actually (laughs) happened. We'll be on episode 10,000 of Soccer 101. Uh, For the more recent episode, please go listen to Soccer 101. If you're interested in watching Americans this weekend um, in the Bundesliga, if you're really interested in Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams, that's all on Sunday. Sunday morning, 7.30, Schalke versus Augsburg. So Schalke will get the chance to play someone who's not Borussia Dortmund. That's <laughs> that good might for be them. helpful. Um, and then Mainz versus Leipzig. This was, uh, mm-hmm. last time these guys played, Leipzig scored eight goals, I believe. That's at 9.30 a.m. Um, so you can watch Tyler Adams in action for RB Leipzig at 9.30. I would, I'm, I'm not even doing like a joke guarantee here. I'm not going to say they're going to score eight. I, I'm going to guess Leipzig uh, hand mines uh, their, their head on a plate, <laughs> sort of. I have a feeling they're going to win this by a couple goals at least. I'm sorry, I forgot to give them their full title. It's relegation threatened, Mainz. Yeah, yeah. But, but this, <laughs> it, it goes with that. And then it's also my feeling that like I saw, a lo- I saw like 90% of what I expected to see from Leipzig in a good way. And I feel like yeah. if they put together that 10%, which was sort of finishing and taking their chances cleanly and getting into slightly better attacking positions, I feel like uh, Mainz might be punished for the way Leipzig started the sort of rebooted season. Oh, we already talked about this, right? Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to hear the detailed version of this conversation, yeah. listen to our Bundesliga review from last Saturday. 
There'll be another Bundesliga review this Saturday, right? They certainly will. will. Out. Saturday evening, reviewing all the Saturday games. Those Sunday games will get reviewed um, later on. We'll keep putting out those podcasts. We certainly um, will. But let's stop talking about things that we've already done, Daryl. Let's, let, let's, <laughs> let's get to some things that we can then talk about having been done. That made sense, right? I've actually got one more plug, if you'll permit me. Um, I suppose. So as you've probably heard earlier in the week, we've been working uh, with Grant Wall to launch his new podcast, Football with Grant I did Wall. hear that. I'm really excited about it. You did hear that. First guest was Tyler Adams. Really good interview with Tyler Adams. Actually, Second first guest, guest was, Second first guest. Guest was Taylor Rockwell. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's be real. <laughs> Second guest was slightly more famous. It was Tyler Adams. Hurtful. Um, the second episode of Grant's podcast uh, just published this morning. The guest is Julie Fowdy. I've listened to this episode um, when I went for a jog earlier. Tell you, I know you listened to this episode in detail because you did the editing. You, you put great. this whole thing together. I would argue, listen to this. I mean, one, if you want to hear Julie Fowdy, but also she uh, talks about the, uh, the Netflix movie that's been put together. Two, Julie Fowdy, I think, has some really good advice for the current U.S. women's national team and how to proceed with their negotiations with U.S. soccer. I think, I think what Julie Fowdy suggests should happen is the way to go. So go and listen to that podcast and hear what Julie Fowdy has to say. And her dog echoes her sentiments, which is also a nice thing to get in there. <laughs> Those were box of agreement, right? They were. I do. I, I continue to have that file on my computer that is just all of the all of the dogs interrupting all of my various recordings. I might add that one, even though it wasn't my recording. Dogs of total suction. Uh-huh. Right? We'll have to get Julie Fed's dog to sign the release form. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on, Taylor, yes, do you want to talk about today's first sponsor? I suppose I we think should. We've talked long enough to get an ad in here. <laughs> today's show oh is sponsored by Roman. Mm-hmm. It is not a great idea to uh, go to the doctors unnecessarily right now, right? But if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, then I've got two pieces of advice. One, don't be embarrassed. This is a thing that happens. Don't be embarrassed. Two, you can get treatment. I guess I've got three pieces of advice. Three, you can get treatment online because our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state or from the comfort of your own home. And so you just grab your phone or computer, uh, presuming, of course, you haven't hid them on the other side of the room. You complete a free online visit. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And the key point there being, you don't have to go outside, Daryl. And it has been raining <laughs> in Richmond, like, on and off for, I think, four and a half years now. Um, yeah, and, and like, right. nobody wants to go to the doctor in the rain. And least of all, if you're dealing with something like erectile dysfunction, in the rain, that's just that's just too much of a bummer. Like, the ads have all taught me that it's... Well, the ads have all taught me that it's supposed to be bright inside. Sunny, and that lets us know that we're feeling good, right? It's bright and sunny at the end of the ad. Oh, it's always mistake. bright and sunny at the end of the ad. And at the end of the ad, if the doctor decides that the treatment mm-hmm. is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime the sun's coming out now, Taylor. Anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. Bright blue skies right now. Bright blue skies. Yeah, there's some sort of like jam band playing now as we skip through a meadow. <laughs> uh, so if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Mr. Grobe. Do you know, do you know it off the top of your head? TSS. There we go. Good job, buddy. Uh, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Secretly, it was me testing Daryl because I moved the order of these around that I forgot what the code was. <laughs> That's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Thank you to Roman for sponsoring today's show and giving us sunny skies, albeit briefly. <laughs> All right. So with all that said, shall we get back to the International Champions Cup of History sponsored by Bill and Ted's Face the Music? Bill and Ted Face the Music? No, no. This week, Taylor, it Mm. is sponsored by the mean scientists from 12 Monkeys who send Bruce Willis back in time.
Okay, I'm good with that. Have you, I was, have you not seen 12 Monkeys? I have. I was genuinely trying to remember because there are lots of twists and turns in that if they yeah. are actually evil or is it one of those like sent back in time for nefarious reasons but it ends no, up being a benevolent mission. It's a weird aspect of time travel. I didn't say evil. I just said mean. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. I guess they are yeah. kind of mean. And not to give away the ending, but one of them also works in insurance. <laughs> I do love that movie. I've seen it far too many times. Did you watch it recently? That was a deep pull, if not. No, I just remember it a lot because I like it. I remember yeah. the music being really good. And I remember it, it, that yes. was one of those moments where I was like, all right, Brad, Brad, Brad Pitt's pretty good. Okay, then. He can act. Mm-hmm. He can act. Um, yeah, so if you're confused because you've never um, heard Total Sock Show before, <laughs> the reason we're talking about time travel is we are doing a great big tournament with all the greatest club teams from history where we give each club team a profile and then they play each other. We have pitted these teams against each other. Um, we did the draw already. Um, the first game up today is... Oh, actually, we've got a result coming in, Taylor. We do. People have been asking about this. Do you remember we did... Oh, yeah. we, we had a weird draw where we had two recent teams play each other. The current Liverpool FC team uh, versus the three times Champions League winning uh, Zinedine Zidane coached Real Madrid team against the current Liverpool team. Um, we couldn't decide, right? We could not split them. We put it to a vote. Have you checked in on the results? I've got the results in front of me. I have that checked in on, in on them in the last, like, 72 hours. The winner is Liverpool with 61.7% of the vote. Did that change? Or am I just incorrect? I mean, it's changed every time someone voted. That's true. But I thought for a moment there, it seemed like Real Madrid were winning with a slight majority. Yeah, it was 50-50 for a long, long yeah. time. Um, the last day or so, it went Liverpool, 61.7%. I just decided we'd go with whatever it was at the time we started recording, which is, which is how we've done it. So congratulations to Liverpool for essentially scraping through the round of 32 to the round of 16. We're sorry, Real Madrid fans. The good news is, though, Real Madrid still has another team to go in this tournament, right? That's impressive by them. Yeah. That's good work yeah. by Real Madrid. There's the early 2000s Galacticos still in this tournament. I, I got to be honest, though. I'm reeling slightly from that result, but also because like, the thing that kind of made me sit in silence for a moment remembering uh, 12 Monkeys is not how good of a movie it is or any of that. It's that I think at one point Brad Pitt eats a spider. Thanks for that, Daryl. That's back in my head now. <laughs> no, doesn't Bruce Willis eat a spider? Somebody does, and I don't like it, and I don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think it is. Oh. So Taylor's against spider eating. Ah, man, spiders freak me out. That's all there is to it. I know they're useful, <laughs> but it, I can't. Every time I see one, I'm like, I know you're useful and you kill insects that are going to try to eat me. But also, I know what you look like if I zoomed in, and no thank you. <laughs> Don't zoom in. Don't zoom in. Um, all right. By zoom in, you mean putting your face real close to them. Right? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> all right. Today's first game in the International Champions Champions Cup of History, sponsored by the mean scientist who sent Bruce Willis back to the future in 12 Monkeys. It's Celtic yes, from 1967, the Lisbon Lions, against the all-conquering Bayern Munich team of the 70s. And we've got Celtic are at home, right? They are indeed. Uh, that Celtic team, obviously the first one to bring home uh, the European Cup to, by a British team. Uh, yep. Every player, first Scottish team, first British team. Yeah, uh, and every player born in Scotland, a key thing there. You don't have any sort of outliers. You don't have any any other players involved. It is all players born in Scotland, most of them born very, very close to Celtic Stadium. I see you're, you're qualifying this. I kept reading that all the players were born within 30 miles of Celtic Park. See, have you found someone who wasn't? Well, here, here, is, here is where it gets more specific than that. Uh, 10 of the 11 starting players in that final were born within 12 miles of the stadium. One was born 30 miles away. So he was the outsider. 
Okay, that's that would, still pre- that's still yeah. a very local team. Oh no, but he yeah he talks. It's Bobby Lennox uh, who's yeah. who's one of the uh, the left winger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he basically was like, yeah, I was thirty miles away, so I was the outsider. They kind of looked at me like the person who didn't belong here. They didn't know me really well. It's like what? <laughs> like, like <laughs> for thirty miles away, it was unacceptable. It's worth noting though, even in 1967, mm-hmm. which obviously is a long time ago, this is rare. Yeah, right. This is absolutely rare. Like when we profiled that uh, Madrid first era Galacticos team, you know, there's a, there's a yeah. Hungarian player yeah. in there. You know what I mean? There's not everybody is like from just round the stadium. This is a, this is a very rare thing to have essentially a bunch of local lads playing for the team um, in the European cup final and winning it. Right. This is, it actually is a big deal that these are all local players. It's not just some weird um, relic of the past that always used to happen. So my question for you then, I think this will make sense, but you might need a moment. What percentage of their success do you credit to that sort of coming up together, having that familiarity versus Jockstein being the manager? Like if you were going to apportion credits, what percentage goes to the familiarity and coming up together and what percentage is just to Jockstein and everything he did? I mean, I'm going to be really, I'm going to sit on the fence and say 50-50. Okay. Yeah. Because I do know from, from what, it's quite hard to watch footage, right? I managed to watch the 67 final mm-hmm. where they beat um, Herrera's Inter, who famously played very defensive Catanaccio football. Celtic played attacking football. So it's this really, that's why this, this victory is so uh, <laughs> lionized, mm-hmm. the Lions of Lisbon. Well then. Um, but, so I've, I've seen that game, but most of the other things I've seen are like uh, documentaries with all the team talking about yeah. themselves, right? Talking about the team. And they always talk about the bonds between them, right? That a lot of them like, used to like walk to the stadium together and they used to go to the chip shop together and all that kind of stuff. And they all talk about Jock Steen, the manager, and the, um, the very specific changes he made. He changed the positions of a lot of these players to make it all fit together, right? Like uh, Bertie Old, um, who's like mm-hmm. the, the famous central midfielder, I think was a winger who Jock Steen said, how about you play what they would have called centre-half back in the day, mm-hmm. which is essentially centre midfield in this kind of 4-2-4 yeah, formation. There. Wearing number 10, if that helps. Yeah. Um, so he really, like Jock Steen really did, and that's not the only difference, right? He yeah. really did make lots of little changes that um, I think got the best out of all these players. Yeah, I, I think I think he switched both fullbacks. Like, I think Tommy Gemmel used to be on the right, and he switches them to the left side for reasons, and I think the same goes for Jim Craig. So, yeah, you have that. And then it just seems like he is almost, like, more than a coach is normally, like, a fatherly figure to a lot of these players, I think because he kind of understood where they came from and who they were. Did you see yeah. the clip of them, or the the video of them all in the United States when they go on, like, a five-week tour? Yes, I actually they were I saw a clip of them around the pool. Yes. I did start skipping at that point. I think we watched the same video. Yeah, probably. But doesn't he look like <laughs> like almost like the, it looks like like the dad from the Wonder Years. <laughs> like that sort yeah, of footage yeah. of him like sitting around like what are you guys doing? Enough roughhousing in the pool. <laughs> and it's just sort of like, okay, I see and I think that's why I asked that initial question is because he seems sort of this all-important figure to them that they always could look to almost like yeah, Sir Alex Ferguson equivalent of like a person that the players you you know like at halftime were like, okay, we can look to him. He's got a solution. He's going to solve it and it seems like generally speaking he did i think that's fair all right let's get to the team sure who do you think is the best player on this team it's not a quiz i'm just generally asking your opinion uh see okay i want to say tommy gemmel that is almost entirely influenced by who his son is uh and and i think your question is difficult specifically for the reasons we've been discussing but in the end i'd go bertie ald the man you already mentioned 
Oh, really? Mm. I would have gone, I'm going Jinky Johnston. All right, let's both okay. talk about our favourite players then. Why, why do you like Bertie Old so much? The, the winger turned central midfielder wearing number 10. Uh, you know me. I let off the field things factor. And I really enjoyed everything I saw from him and the way he explains stuff. But it's also, but it's not just that he's like a good storyteller. It's that the way he explains things, you can see how clear things are in his mind. And I think that's why that move happened. Why he goes central and why he has the success there is because I think he's able to process so much and figure things out in a way that really is to the benefit of Celtic, obviously, but then he's got the kind of ball playing, he can do a little bit of the dribbling that almost looks modern, and then he's got just that like laser finish that even when teams like Inter have packed it in and backed it in, that he can still sort of hit some shots on goal that are maybe going to go in or maybe be uh, turned loose for opportunities, and so I felt like he, he brought a good diversity of skill sets to the table. All right, I like it. Um, I want to talk about Jimmy Johnson in a second, Please. but I think since you've mentioned Bertie Old, I want to talk about uh, Bobby Murdoch, who is Bertie Old's central midfield partner. Mm-hmm. Um, Murdoch was much more of the uh, the classy central midfielder who would spray passes around, right? Yeah. So he's more like a almost a regista type. But what I think really is really interesting is when you take that these two are your centre mids. From what I understand, it's quite rare in the sixties to have two central midfielders, or again centre halves as they would have been called. And neither of them are really defensive midfielders. They're both attacking pieces, right? right. Attacking pieces of the puzzle. And I think that says a lot about what this Celtic 67 team was all about, right? So it's all about having attacking. players who can go forward and attack. Yeah. And going back to Tommy Gemmell, um, I've also just done some surreptitious last minute research, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, he is not related to Archie Gemmell. Oh, is he not? I, I got that wrong. No, I got confused. So Archie Gemmell, who famously scores yeah. in the, scores in the World Cup, right? And Ewan McGregor gets very excited about it in Trace Yes, button. he does. Um, he had a son Scott Gemmell who uh, played so I got confused with the father-son relationship Tommy Gemmell is not related to any of them it really was um, it was the last name and then it was the ability to score key goals in key moments because he scores the opener yes. in this final uh, does Tommy Gemmell and it's uh, worth mentioning Tommy Gemmell is a left back mm-hmm. if you watch that goal in the final yeah. he is like in what we call zone 14 right he's right at the top of the box um, striking that shot and the guy that passes it to him is Craig the that right is my back, favorite part of that who is like inside the area so yep. it's it's right back to left back, but it's not even switching the field. It's like they're both in central attacking midfield areas. For me, it, like a lot of this, like it keeps going back to Pep Guardiola in that like the more I learn about these teams and the way they play, the more respect I have for him. But simultaneously, the more I'm like, okay, so that's a Pep, like he, like that's a Celtic thing. <laughs> like like the two fullbacks <laughs> being central and like passing the ball. It's like, oh, okay, I can see where he got stuff. So it's cool to see the uh, the kind of history of these things. But it's also, Daryl, I know, I know you probably know this. It's interesting to explore why that's the case, why that yeah. was their sort of philosophy. Um, I, actually, I don't know. So I, the story that I'm believing could be apocryphal is that Jacques Steen is at the 1960 European Cup final mm. in Glasgow, sees what Real Madrid do, and apparently comes away from that with the idea that like it, you have to attack, and it's the entire team's responsibility to score goals. Yes, it's not just I one guy. Lose. It's not put per, a big person up top and have them run at the defense and see what happens. Everybody's got to be involved, and everybody's got to create, and that seems to have been the philosophy that he embraced, and it seems to have worked pretty well, at least for a couple seasons. Slash, did, like, 15. But you still need Jimmy Jinky Johnston <laughs> on your team. So this is my favorite player. This guy mm. played right wing for Celtic. Um, and even though there's not a lot of footage of this team, you really can. If you go search for Jinky Johnston highlights, there are all kinds of highlights of him running at people. And he, he's a joy to behold. He's, like, 
short kind of like crouched over the ball like I've, loads of step overs and feints and accelerations and cuts uh, just absolutely embarrassing people all day long so everything you've just described i agree with the other key thing that informs what i'm about to say is i i saw a lot of him cutting inside to shoot onto his favorite left foot uh yeah. very good powerful shots really really reminiscent of like a 1967 Aryan robin to me that's that like interesting very yeah. quick good cuts good skill on the ball technical will body you up if you want to go that route but will happily cut inside and kind of unleash shots on you i don't disagree with the Aryan robin comparison because especially because of the cut inside and yeah. uh, shoot with the left which is great when you're part of an attacking team right but he also reminded me of garincha the mm. way he's like weirdly crouched over the ball and then doing moves and going past people i think he's a bit like a scottish garincha at the same time I don't know which one of those he would prefer to be. Probably Garantia. I mean, if you can be told that you're a bit of both, that's not bad, is it? <laughs> I suppose not. Half Robin, half Garantia. Jimmy <laughs> Johnston. Honestly, if you want to like see some skills, go go check him out on YouTube. For anyone else you want to talk about on this team tally, we do have a lot of teams to talk about. There is. Uh, but... There's there's a word I wanted to go back to. Uh, for Americans who haven't hung out with Daryl Grove, uh, you called him Jinky Johnston. Do you want to explain that yeah. one? Well, that's his nickname. Um, what what does the... jink- Jinky mean? Because oh, it sounds like Janky to me. Yeah, so it's with an I, J-I-N-K-Y. Um, it means like uh, he like to jinx someone is to like fake one way and go mm-hmm. the other way. So I guess actually if this was American, it w- he'd be Dukey Johnston. <laughs> there you go. I like that. Right? Yeah. He'd like Dukey one way and then go the other. Yeah, so mm-hmm. he's du- du- is it Dukey or Dukey? Uh, Dukey Johnston, yeah. Um, I-, I don't have much else to say aside from just that I really enjoy Jim Craig. Uh, one, he's a qualified dentist. I think he's the only like <laughs> non-professional footballer. That made me laugh. And describing uh, the way... Uh, Inter go up in that in that 67 final is via penalty conceded by Jim Craig. And when discussing it, did you hear him describe how it happened? He He's absolutely adamant that it is not a penalty still. Right? But he begins it by saying some idiot gave away a penalty, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which I just appreciated the humility. Uh, and I imagine he probably wouldn't be quite so cavalier in that attitude had they not have come away victorious. But they did, which is why they're here. And there is footage of that 67 final. I really think it's worth watching because Inter, once again, they're this famed defensive team. They're in this tournament, right? We'll talk about them at some point. They're this famed defensive team. They go up 1-0 because of that penalty quite early on. I want to say it's within like the first 15 minutes or so. And then they attempt to lock it up and see out the game. So you've got this great attacking team in Celtic who've essentially got... 75 minutes to turn this game around it's almost like a, the plot for a movie right yeah that really is what happens Inter sit deep and defend and they're the best defensive team in the world and celtic go at them and go at them and go at them for the rest of the game it was really thrilling i really really enjoyed going back and, and watching this um uh, and the, the and the last thing i will say to that point is uh the, the other thing i learned in that in that video that i think we both watched is that inter stayed and watched celtic train and that partially explains why they sat back so much not just because it was their system but no, because they're always going to do no, that it doesn't no, matter what they'd seen in training well, let, let a man finish before you jump All in right. my point was that basically they watched celtic train and celtic like their approach to the the day before training was like let's just kind of kick it around get loose and have fun and inter saw that and thought like oh that's who we're playing this kind of like loose team there's no way if we score one we can just sit in they're never going to be able to deal with it but it's why they didn't really see celtic as a threat until essentially it was too late when they were already sort of being overrun i actually read an even better story than that which is that Ooh, they were training, all right they- all right they knew Inter were coming to watch them play, mm-hmm. right? So the story I read, which again could be apocryphal because a lot of like legends get printed about these old teams, right? Uh-huh. Jock Steen in practice told them to all play the wrong position and to not too obviously but deliberately keep giving the ball away. See, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that just, I, I know, just love I that level of mind games, man. I that's hope so that's true. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Celtic's opponents um, mm-hmm. in this matchup are 
the Bayern Munich team of the 70s. So they win the European Cup 74, 75, 76. Three back-to-back-to-back European Cups. Um, They also win the Bundesliga 72, 73, 74. Mm -hmm. Um, This is quite the team, right? This is the Franz Beckenbauer, Gerd Müller, Uli Hoeneß team. That's the three names I would sort of say ring out when you uh, when you when you take a look at this team. Yes, I would agree with that. That's like the like the A level, and then there's a couple on the B level, and then there's a few more that you probably haven't heard as much about uh, or yeah. at all. I mean, so I don't know how you want to handle this, but there are a couple of players who are like overlapping and not overlapping, right? Like Paul Breitner, mm-hmm. uh, the fullback, who I thought was brilliant when I saw him. Um, he plays up until seventy four and then leaves for Real Madrid. And now Karl Heinz Rummenigge, mm-hmm. who's this legend right at Bayern Munich he's young and up and coming and I think he only comes into the team like late 74 75 76 so for example those two I don't think are ever on the field together but they're both part they're both part of this like uh, magnificent era of Bayern Munich and again these are the guys that are sort of in charge of Bayern right now anyway right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I I had Paul Breitner in my like theoretical Bayern team and I also have uh, Karl Heinz Rummenigge as well Okay, so this is like a best of. A yeah, best I think of. so. I think but so. I think that, weirdly, even though we kind of have to uh, cheat a little bit to get both of those guys in, it's actually quite, uh, it's remarkable how stable this team was for six years. May, yeah, uh, it's maybe like even longer, right? Eight of the 11, I think, like remain yeah. consistent throughout. And even before this happened, going back to Byron's like very, very early days in the Bundesliga, uh, you have a lot of these guys playing for them when they're in like the second division, which isn't Bundesliga 2, whatever it was at the time, they're yeah. playing in that before they're even in the Bundesliga. The regional league, they called it. Um, so yeah, a lot of these guys came up together. I think is the point, right? Mm-hmm. There's some. I think there's some key players to talk about, and I'd like to start with Gerd Müller because anything I ever read was even all these other great players were saying Bayern would be nothing if not for Gerd Müller because no one could do what he did, and they even make the argument that no one's been able to do what he did ever since. And after watching a load of Gerd Müller. I think I kind of agree. I think he might be the best finisher of all time. I mean, I agree with the idea. It feels a little bit like if you're doing a movies podcast and maybe you've seen the movie too many times. And so when you get to like favorite scene, you sort of dismiss the obvious favorite scene to talk about like the lesser known one. Like you can't really talk about this team that has Franz Beckenbauer in it, who essentially made a position his own and was the only one who could play that position. I feel like I still give the edge to Franz Beckenbauer, but I'm with you that Gerd Muller is incredible. So obviously we'll talk about Beckenbauer yeah. later, right? Because mm-hmm. he's a, he's the key piece to, to all this. But they all talk about Gerd Müller. Yeah, they Here's do. what I see when I look at Gerd Müller. I look at his stats, 398 goals for Bayern mm-hmm. in 453 games. That's mind-blowing. That is ridiculous. Um, I see a guy who is sort of nimble, powerful, competitive, ruthless, and two-footed. And he's just in and around the box looking for chances Never, never off balance. He's never caught unawares. And he seems to just finish anything that comes his way. Left Mm -hmm. foot, right foot, head, whatever it may be. He'll get there first. He's got the instincts, the competitiveness, the sort of, I would call it athleticism over short distances (laughs) to always get there and always finish. The man was unstoppable. I want to reiterate those numbers again. 398 goals in 453 appearances. He knocks in 40 uh, by himself in the 1972 uh, season. Yes. He's ridiculous. He's just ridiculous. And 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 it is it is definitely partially like you if you take a very very good player, if you take an average player and you put them around a bunch of people who are excellent and they learn to kind of play enough that they can facilitate that team continuing to play excellent, they're going to look way better. If you take a world-class goal scorer and put them in a team that is this like highly fluid like attacking engine, they're going to look that much better. And I do yeah. think that you kind of have both here of an incredibly talented striker playing an incredibly uh 
like well suited system essentially. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think he he's he wouldn't have scored as many goals elsewhere, but he still would have scored a bunch of goals. I think wherever he was, right? Mm-hmm. As many chances as were available, Good Muller's going to score most of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and so so I think it's probably Gerd Muller is... All right, I'll go with you. You can say he's the most important, but I still found myself just kind of gravitating towards Franz Beckenbauer. Can we talk about All him right. now, or do you want to talk about more attackers first? I want to save Beckenbauer a little bit, because it's nah. such a fascinating thing to talk about. I want to talk about Gerd Muller's strike partner, okay. U- Uli Hernes, mm-hmm. uh, wearing the number 10. One of the fastest players I've ever seen, I think. Absolutely rapid going past people. Uli Hernes. So fast, he might even uh, forget to pay his taxes for a couple of years because he's just <laughs> that quick. He's just moving on. Is that what he was? He just fills the form in really quickly. Yes. <laughs> As he's running past. Can I just jump in and say, do you know the details of that? I don't. I, I gathered the broad outline of it from your conversation with uh, yeah. Manuel Veit. Yeah, I just want to add that like he was accused of $3 million and 3 million euros of tax evasion. And in the trial, he was basically like, well, I'm pleading guilty to it anyway. It's actually like $26 million. <laughs> Like He just straight up owns that like, no, it's way more than you think. <laughs> but in this case, that's not happening yet. Instead, he's just uh, scoring goals because he is quite uh, fleet of foot, as you mentioned. Uh, he was the one who on the team seemed to get the pace and power designation when being yeah. described. I think power is true because he would also seem to muscle past people and then like cut really tightly and really quickly. He's... What, po- what position would you say he played? I keep seeing him all over the place and I couldn't quite get a feel for exactly what his best position is. Left-ish, but then dropping central on occasion. I, like he's wearing the 10, which I know is probably more of a product of like where they line up on the field than anything else. But it's still, it still seems relevant that he is running in behind and being very quick, but then also dropping in and also popping up on the wrong side of the field, if you want to phrase it that way. Yeah, okay, yeah, that seems, that seems good to me then. I also uh, like well, that he's so fast that his hairline is actually moving away from his head, even at that point. <laughs> like, it really does look, because of the kind of, like, mullet, but, like, receding hairline he has, it looks like he's just getting faster and faster, and the hair keeps moving <laughs> further away. All right, Taylor, we're going to talk about mm. the player you want to talk about, okay. the captain, Franz Beckenbauer, Der Kaiser, mm. all of that. Here's what I kept seeing. Whenever I, whenever I read stuff or see yep. videos or hear about Franz Beckenbauer, people always say, there's nothing more to be said about Franz Beckenbauer. <laughs> And I always think, why don't you try? Why don't you actually like, watch him play and try and say something about him instead of just saying there's nothing more can be said about Franz Beckenbauer? Because I think people like talk about how he redefined the Libero position and all that sort of stuff. I think a lot of people talk about him in those broad details without actually watching Beckenbauer play and figuring out what it was that he was doing. So I'm just going to go ahead and cross out. There's nothing more to be said about him. <laughs> you, um, yeah, you didn't have that to say. <laughs> I, I didn't. Instead, what I, what I had to say was that I still don't think I fully understand what a libero is because apparently there are 40 different versions of it depending on what national team you're talking about. All I'll All say right. is that the Beckenbauer one uh, seems like a word that means go everywhere and do everything and also score some goals despite being a sweeper. Here's the sort of um, very... Uh, broad version of it right and mm-hmm. it's going to be different in different countries so, so so this is like the um the in general uh history of the libero and beckenbauer's role in it fair mm-hmm. um so essentially you have you have the defense right and you have people who, their job is to mark opponents and then you have a sweeper and the sweeper is the libero and the reason it's called that he's called the libero is basically because you're free right as in you're not supposed to be marking anyone you are free to like be behind the other defenders and sweep up any balls that come through right um, and for the longest time, that job was a purely defensive job. You would do that, and then you would give the ball to the midfielders or the forwards or someone better, right? 
The big difference is that when Beckenbauer played libero, he would not just do the defensive part and get the ball, he would then carry it out of the back and not just start attacks by like playing a ball between the lines to a forward. He would then also sometimes, when he felt like it was the right time, he would go and join the attack, right? Yeah, so he this- made libero... Not just free of marking, it was free to do whatever the hell he wanted because he was the best player on the field. Yeah, in the non-Bundesliga season, Gerd Müller scores 33, Franz Beckenbauer scores 16 as a sweeper. There we uh, go. Not yeah. bad. And, and that's, I think my, that's... that's my potted history of yeah. why they say Beckenbauer redefined the libero position. Is he essentially just like... Uh, just took more responsibility farther up the field than any libero ever had before. Yeah, and it's one of those where it's almost like because... Of the like, because I think it has that context of being a defensive thing. Of you're the sweeper yeah. who can roam around and put out fires. I think it's almost like the word itself does a disservice to what he's doing because he's basically the precursor to well, we'll sit the best like ball player deep, and we'll make them the regista. It's essentially yeah. like what he did. It's just making it a more sort of a fixed position. Yeah, he's like this. He's the sweeper. He's mm-hmm. the number six, like Regista, and he's also sometimes the number ten when he gets far enough um, up in the attack and ends up um, in the box. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's also I, I got really excited watching him play, realizing that this is a guy who is fully in control of everything. Right, and the thing that impressed me so much is I didn't even realize until like 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 a few minutes into like really paying close attention, Franz Beckenbauer was fast. He was very very fast. But there are so many players who, like, pace is their key asset, right? Even Uli Hoeneß, you'd say, okay, his main thing is that he's fast. For Beckenbauer, it was, like, his his fifth biggest asset. So he's doing all the other things, like um, his control of the ball, his reading of the game, his ability to pick out passes. And only at certain points does he exploit the fact that he's one of the fastest players on the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that shows you his level of intelligence and the level of sort of like organization and spatial awareness he has to be able to co- sort of keep track of everybody's movements and know where he is in relation to those. Worth noting, not name the Kaiser for his like organization or disciplinary skills. It's because he looked like the young Kaiser when he was a baby. <laughs> that's that was- that's my other little wrinkle to add there because I always think like, oh, that makes sense then. Like he's the one who's running everything. He's the kind of chief architect of what's happening. No, it's just because he looked like another guy. The other, um, the other version of the story I heard is mm-hmm. that um, he pl- at some point early in his career, he played against another player who was referred to as the Kaiser. <laughs> and Beckenbauer dominated him, dominated the game, and sort of took the crown, and they started calling him the Kaiser after that. That feels like the apocryphal story to me. <laughs> yes, but I love it. Print the legend. Print the legend. <laughs> um, here's the other thing. When you watch Beckenbauer, yep. you will see a guy who it is impossible to take the ball off him. I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen this footage. There's so much footage of him with the ball and someone comes towards him and he'll just use the outside of his foot to do like a little circle or half circle or a quick turn away. And players would almost not be, they'd not be willing to like keep chasing him because they just knew this guy's not coughing up the ball. In he, the modern he, era, he'd be called press resistant, I guess. It's uh, like uh, it's the Ajax team of Cruyff that wins the three before Bayern Munich. And there's that famous Cruyff quote of, before I make a mistake, I don't make that mistake. That seems yes. to have been a thing that Franz Beckenbauer inherited as well as winning three straight European yeah. titles. It is oh. not making mistakes when you cannot afford to make mistakes. Um, I, I realize that I've gone on at length about yeah. Franz mm-hmm. Beckenbauer. Is there anything else you want to say about him? No, not really. I mean, just just that like he was the one that I found myself wanting to watch the most because you hear so much about him and and that sort of legendary status. I think you're absolutely right that that can be sort of overwhelming. And so it's easy to boil it down to like, what else can be said about this guy? He's just the best. No one's like him. Uh, And I think 
like going back and deliberately watching him, I was prepared for it to be like a little bit more hype. And it's worth noting this is when Germany win the Euros and they win the World Cup and he is lifting the the trophies there. So like maybe it's sort of like, oh, yeah, like all this stuff blends together and he's really good. No, he's just really good. He's worth watching. (laughs) (laughs) The best player on a brilliant team. Yeah, right? that's, mm-hmm. I think that's the thing. And even defensively, he's brilliant. You watch him do the sweeping job, which is like the less glamorous part, but he reads what's happening and he's over there and he's got the ball and he's covering it. And then he's bringing the ball out and picking out passes and starting attacks. If you've got a player like that on the team, it means you're really hard to score against. And you've got this like brilliant brain and like brilliant technical player carrying the ball forward at you. It, means, it just makes you, makes you an impossible team to play against. So... With that in mind, though, one thing I always look at is is who the managers are and sort of yes. like, is there consistency? Like, were they there the whole time? And anytime there's not, I find that really interesting because I wonder, like, did somebody get promoted or move on or what happened? And here we do have that. We have Udo Latek for, uh, he coaches them 70 to 74, so he's only there for that first European tri- triumph. Then well, we have Dietmar Kramer the three coming. three Bundesliga's there, right? So also Udo Latek is very, very important. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly so. Yeah, I'm not dismissing either one. It was just more like, well, what happened? Uh, and basically, Bayern, as you mentioned, like, they win the Bundesliga, but then when they start winning European Cups, it seems like maybe that becomes their focus. They're not as focused on their league position. So LaTeX is fired. In comes Kramer. And I found myself going real deep on this one because do you know where Kramer was before he took over Bayern Munich? Um, he was outside the door and he slid in and the crowd cheered. <laughs> I don't even know what that's a reference to. Seinfeld. Ah, uh, he was not. He was coaching the U.S. men's national team. Oh, wow. Right? And so I found myself thinking, like, here's this dude who won two European Cups. Would it have been different? Like, maybe maybe we do turn some things around in the 70s, and suddenly maybe that does lead to a boost in the NASL. Maybe Bayern starting that season a little bit slack is the reason why the United States continues to struggle to this day. So thanks a lot. <laughs> I also heard in your conversation with Manuel, apologies to listeners to keep referencing it, mm-hmm. I guess if you haven't listened to it, you really should go listen to it, is that essentially the players are a big deal at Bayern. The players yeah. run the team. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that someone like Beckenbauer has a big say in what the tactics are with this Bayern team and what the lineup is. Um, and also the fact that it's a very consistent lineup means not that there are no tactical decisions to make, but I think a lot of it is already taken care of, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just about like keeping the players happy and making sure everything is still good. Which is weird because this team seems like, like Bayern and uh, the German national team both seem very much like the thing that keeps thwarting the Netherlands on a lot of occasions. And you expect that to be because they've got some genius who's countering the genius that the Dutch have on offer. And instead, maybe it is just like consistency in Franz Beckenbauer. That's all you need. Yep. Um, <laughs> oh, I also want to talk about Hans George Schwarzenbach. Are you familiar yep. with this gentleman? So uh, he was the the, um, the other centre back, the other centre back mm-hmm. who is known as either Kaiser Beckenbauer's adjutant, which is sort of like clerical mm-hmm. assistant, or the Kaiser's cleaner. Um, but a magnificent player in his own right, a magnificent ball-winning, slide-tackling centre-back who could play a little bit as well. Yeah, I like that nickname more. Hans George, a magnificent player in his own right, Schwarzenbacher. Yeah, I like that one. It's probably fairer to not reference Beckenbauer, right, and just refer to Hans George Schwarzenbach in his own right as a great centre-back. Yeah, and a, and a good goal scorer too. He scores the yeah. first one in 1974. Uh, so you have both defenders getting forward if need be. <laughs> yeah, right. He could, yeah, he could get forward and get involved mm-hmm. as well. We haven't talked about Karl-Heinz Rummenegger. Um, he's another player with lots of great highlights to enjoy. What, what were your favorite ones? He's like dribbly and fun and inventive. He seems mm-hmm. to like be doing things. He's a striker, but he's got like the dribbly skills of a winger and like scoring goals from weird angles and like weird volleys that you don't think are possible, but he, but he pulls them off. I think he's a really exciting player, Karl-Heinz Rummenegger. 
Is he your favorite of the uh, the two first names on these teams? Who else has got two first names? Oh, Hans George, George Schwarzenbeck. No, I'm 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 in the Hans George Schwarzenbeck camp <laughs> just because I want uh, respect for centre backs. That's fair. I know you do, buddy. I know you do. Uh, anyone else you'd like to discuss uh, before we get to how this game might go? Yeah, the uh, the Swedish right winger, Connie uh, Torstensson. Mm-hmm. So every game I saw, uh, he would win number seven. He'd be fast running at you. Um, they. It struck me that this Bayern team has a lot of players who essentially have top dribbling skills and can run at you, right? So yeah. Uli Hoeneß, um, Rummenegger, Torstensson, you've got all, all these attacking gifts and then you've got Gerd Muller finishing everything off in the box, which I think is... And then you've got Beckenbauer like orchestrating things from from all the way in the back, bringing the ball all the way up to the front. And I would more or less just have that described as Bayern's style of play. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, th- I is think that fair? I think it is. And then, and then there is still the like an element of the total footballness to it all because I think, yeah, Torstensen on that sort of right midfield, right wing side, but then he'll push on. You'll have like uh, Root, I think it was, or Koppelman will slide over. You have Beckenbauer step up and you're in that kind of 3-4-3 sort of shape that I think becomes really representative of a lot of what happens in the 70s. And I think it shows you why they're able to have some of that success, but also how you're able to sort of change parts and move them around and you keep people in really, really strong positions. So what I find really interesting is you've only just mentioned Rote and Keppelman, and uh-huh. I didn't mention them at all. Mm-hmm. And those are the central midfielders yeah. in a team that won three European Cups in a row. And I yeah. found that fascinating. And there's not much written about those guys, and I couldn't tell you too much about them. I haven't watched enough footage to have a good feel for them. And my working theory is that Beckenbauer stepped out of the back and dominated central midfield so much mm-hmm. that there wasn't room for those guys to shine. They were maybe just there to uh, to sort of hold position and do a job, but it was Beckenbauer's midfield to run when he brought the ball forward. I think that is a distinct possibility. There is also maybe the more cynical explanation, which is that the people who you do tend to hear more from and the people who are very lionized are the people who have very strong, long-lasting relationships with Bayern Munich and are maybe the ones who are most inclined to talk publicly about their successes with Bayern Munich. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, All right, Taylor, who wins this game? It's in Glasgow, 1967. Uh, Celtic 67 are hosting Bayern Munich comes to town who wins this game? Bayern Munich I think so too would you like me to expand on that or you just want me to say Bayern Munich? um, I mean I have a couple of ideas like Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of Jinky Johnston I think if he's going up up against Paul Breitner at left back he's I mean, he's still going to have a good game, but he's up against a really like powerful defender. Mm-hmm. And I think there's trouble there. I think if Jinky Johnston gets past anyone, then Franz Beckenbauer is sweeping up um, behind everybody. I, I think Bayern essentially are too defensively strong with a great sort of transition threat as Beckenbauer brings the ball forward. I, I, I agree with you, but I would say to that, like the, the counter argument would be like Bayern are too defensively strong. Like, aren't we talking about a team that like broke Catanaccio? Like, come on now. And I think the answer there is simply that like, as we've talked about, Inter were so defensive after they scored that first goal. They sit so deep. And it was Jacqueline saying, like, we are going to attack you. We're going to break you. So I think it's almost a stars aligning perfect moment of you've got this team that are, like, hell-bent on attack against a team that are just going to defend. And yes, they're going to counterattack, but they're not going to be maybe as deadly and good at it as, say, this Bayern Munich team. And I think that's the difference for me is that Bayern will be very good in defense, but are going to be even more inclined to attack, uh, certainly more so than Inter would have yeah. been. And I think I mean, it doesn't think- work, really. I think we're in agreement, right? Yeah. I think the key mm-hmm. word I used was transition. That once yeah. Bayern have defended successfully with all these yeah. incredible defenders, then they have they have Beckenbauer making the transition and then mm-hmm. all that attacking talent ahead of him. I think that's I think that's too much for Celtic. 
I think it is too, which I'm sad about because I wanted the Celtic team to do better. And I researched them because I, I like was reading some stuff about Bayern and then I had uh, had the conversation with Manuel. So I took a break and read a bunch about Celtic and got really excited watching them. And, and I was like, okay, maybe there's a chance. Maybe this is a really special team. And then just watching Bayern, it's like, ah, they're really good, but Bayern are better. It's a machine, right? The yeah. Bayern team is an absolute machine. The good news is Celtic are at home, so at least none of these players have far to get home. That's good. Yeah, except for the one who's 30 miles away. Other than that. I mean, even that, that is not far. Um, <laughs> I should end. I was slightly disrespectful to a, a great team there. So it is worth just noting that this Celtic team, I think, is the only team ever to do a quintuple. So this season... Oh, yeah. They won the 67 European Cup, which is what we all talk about, mm-hmm. right? They also won the Scottish League. They won the Scottish FA Cup, the Scottish League Cup... And a thing called the Glasgow Cup, which yeah. isn't a big deal now, I don't think, but it's essentially just a little tournament for the Glasgow teams. But that includes Rangers um, and Celtic. And I can't remember who the other teams were, but it was a big deal to win the Glasgow Cup at the time. They didn't play Five Rangers trophies. in the final. I'll tell you that much. And they right there, that tells you how things have changed. Yes. So Celtic with five trophies, but this Bayern team, too much for anyone to handle, I yes. think. So Bayern Munich go through to the round of 16. They do. Congratulations to Bayern. We've got... Two more games, sort of, to discuss, because uh, we've got a, a play-in. But before we get to the play-in, uh, at this point, Daryl, uh, in the in the broadcast, I'm assuming you're sort of like worn down, you're dehydrated, you're thirsty. You could yeah. use that halftime break to refresh. And if that is the case, then our friends at Hydrant have you covered. Thank you to Hydrant for sponsoring today's show. So Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Taylor can confirm. because I got. I, yeah. Did your hydrant arrive? I did. It did. Right. And I used it. And I liked it. What, what's your favorite flavor? I like blood orange, but I think I go grapefruit. Oh, nice. Lime is my favorite. Maybe uh, we could do a trade. Mayhaps. Mayhaps, my friend. <laughs> um, here's what I genuinely like about uh, hydrant. Um, uh, no artificial sweeteners. It's yep. just straight up cane sugar in there. Just a little bit, right? Just to add a bit, um, a bit of sweetness um, and some real fruit flavor. And then... All kinds of electrolytes, the four essential electrolytes that your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. There we are. Uh, as Daryl said, there are three different uh, flavors. You can choose just one of them, or you can go with the variety pack. It starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. How could you go about getting that, Daryl? And maybe if you didn't want to pay the full price, what could they do? I mean, I'd want 25% off. And if so, I would go to drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. That's drinkhydrant.com slash soccer for 25% off your first order. One more time, that's drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode, for keeping us hydrated, which is a very useful thing because I do find myself forgetting to drink water uh, when I'm just at home. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I don't need water. You do need water. You should drink a bunch of it. And put some flavor and put some electrolytes in mm-hmm. it. Thanks to Hydrant, I feel really hydrated. Even just talking about them, I feel hydrated and ready to talk about the next games. All right. Here's how the draw came out. Mm-hmm. The draw came out with the Stour Bucharest team of the late 80s that won the European Cup, went to the semis and also got back to the final not too long afterwards, right? Won the European Cup in 1986 against Arrigo Saki's Milan team of the late 80s, early 90s. But we but. got a late pitch from Eldin Hashish mentioned that maybe we should include the Red Star Belgrade team that won the 1991 European Cup. We got a lot of pitches that we for teams people think we should have included. This was the most convincing. I'm yep. really glad that Eldin contacted us because I re- I love this Red Star team. Yep. 
You will get no arguments from me. I'm right there with you. And I think part of that is informed by we know so much about a, a specific moment in Red Star's history, that being the clash with Dinamo Zagreb and everything that followed after that. And I think then that You mean that, the Civil War? Yeah. But I mean, I mean, in terms of like the actual conflict on the field that then leads to the Civil War and, and yeah, Boban yeah. kicking a police officer and whatnot. Um, and I think that then that blends in my mind of like, it shouldn't, but I have this sort of moment then of like, oh, well, they were like the Serbian team and they were sort of Serbian nationalists. And you look at this team, that is not the case. They're all also seem to be very sweet individuals, at least some of them that I saw interviewed, but also not just Serbians. You've got a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds playing for this team yeah. and kind of dealing with a lot of adversity while simultaneously like staying as a a, a unit is pretty impressive. So to, for people who don't know, um, during the uh, 70s and 80s, Yugoslavia was a nation made up of literally the United Slavic nations, right? Mm. Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia, like probably more that I'm not even thinking of. Um, and uh, it was General Tito essentially held it held it all together, I think slightly by force. Um, but you, you did have this team in Red Star Belgrade, which is in Belgrade, modern day Serbia. But as Taylor mentioned, this team really was like united uh, players from all over Yugoslavia, right? Mm-hmm. So again, really worth noting, not just um, a Serbian team. It is a team from all over. Essentially, Yugoslavian all-stars on the Red Star Belgrade team. And we have a special, special all-star because we do have them uh, in a play-in game with another team. We kind of change things around. But there's a player who will be playing for both teams. So either way, he's going to be yeah. happy. That man is Mio Drag uh, Belodidic. <laughs> Hard to say, right? Hard to I mean, say. It took me a minute. Belodidici. Belodidici, I believe. Um, I, I, I heard it pronounced as Dedic, but hopefully uh, it's Dedic. I'll take that too. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so mm-hmm. we should decide what order we, do we want to talk about these teams. Do you want to talk about Stau Bucharest first or do you want to talk about Red Star Belgrade first? Let's go Red Star. Let's go. Rest. Okay, yeah, we're already sort of halfway in there. Mm. Right? Um, maybe the first thing to talk about is their style of play because there's mm. a lot of individual players to talk about. I, the thing that I saw and read, and so is confirmed at least for me, is that this is a counter-attacking team with all kinds of pace, right? Yep. So they would not sit deep, deep. I feel like they would um, press you around the halfway line and then they would go at you with all their attacking talent. And every single one of the attacking players had blistering pace, except for Robert Prozanetsky. But it's okay because Prozanetsky is a genius and he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, that's pretty much accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's worth noting when you say like they're attacking players, I would say it's basically like the two sort of straight up forwards. And then all four of the midfielders could also be considered attacking because they all score goals. They all get forward. They all seem pretty calm on the ball as well. Yes. Okay. So let's, should we just go through some of these um, attackers sure. then? Give a give a quick profile. I think the the easiest guy in terms of position and role is Darko Panchev, right? Yep. So Darko Panchev is a pure centre forward known as the Cobra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cobra with a K. Which, which I do appreciate. The K is nice, but I just mean the Cobra uh, nickname because uh, it's really easy to call him like Fox in the Box. Uh, so I appreciate that they went with a different animal aside from Fox. Yeah, well, it feels more it feels more deadly to be a cobra than a fox in a box, right? The fox is just going to come in and eat a bit of your food. The cobra, mm-hmm. like it's over. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw loads of goals from from Pachev that I mm-hmm. really like. He's like similar to uh, to Gerd Muller. Yep. Um, he's got a lot of attacking talent behind him, putting things on a plate for him. I would argue that Panchev is like more mobile, a bit faster, maybe even a bit. Uh, fl- his goals are f- a bit flashier than Gerd mm-hmm. Muller's. Gerd Muller's are a lot of just do whatever it takes to put it in the back of the net. Panchev's a lot more like, oh, that's an incredible touch, and always oh, put it top corner with that volley. You know what I'm saying? So you're saying Panchev is better than Gerd Muller? I don't know. I'd like to see Panchev playing that Bayern Munich team <laughs> if we could somehow uh, get get him in the time machine. I mean, he was 
equally prolific, uh, or maybe not quite as equally, but definitely a prolific striker, uh, was Ponchev. And then, uh, to your point about like him, him getting good service, him being in good positions, he does have also really good connections, it seems, with his teammates. Uh, the one that was, uh, repeatedly mentioned, uh, in what I read was, uh, Savicevic, the kind of yeah. left winger, but obviously comes inside and moves all over because that's what these teams tend to do. Uh, lots of assists, lots of combinations, and lots of those sort of long range one twos where it's like ball pinged in that's 30 yards, held up for a second and laid off back to Savicevic, who's now 30 yards yeah. up the field. I actually think the interesting thing in terms of the shape of this team is it's quite hard to pick positions, right? They seem to have quite a weird shape. Yeah. And I'd, I'd almost call it like Panchev is definitely the central number nine striker. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Savicevic and Prozanetsky are almost like dual playmakers. Like Savicevic yeah. slightly to the left, Prozanetsky center and slightly to the right. And then you've got Binic, who's just like raw pace on mm-hmm. the right. I even saw one of Binic's teammates said... He wasn't the best tactically, yeah. which I took to mean like maybe he didn't know that much about how soccer worked, but he was so fast he was unstoppable. Yeah. <laughs> so B- we, we- B- Binic is just all the pace on the right. Savicevic and Prozanetsky are like all the creativity in the middle. But we know, we know though, that like that can be a thing that coaches want. Maybe they don't want you to be thinking, like thinking on the fly and trying to figure out defenses. It's just like, no, you be the fast guy who scores goals. And then people have to worry about the fast guy who scores goals. Right. And it's all relative, right? It's Mm -hmm. like his, his lack of tactical understanding or perceived lack of tactical understanding is relative to Prozanetsky and Savicevic, these geniuses of football, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure Binic knows more than we do, but we all know less than Savicevic and (laughs) Prozanetsky. Yeah. And and then. (laughs) And then, like, we've talked a, a bit about the attack, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but it's also the way they defended seems to be a thing that gets a lot of attention, not just the, like, aggressive tackling, which was certainly on display, but a lot of the kind of the pressure and the physicality of that pressure. Like, hearing Graham Sunis, I'm guessing you saw that as well, Graham Sunis talk about, like, we couldn't handle it. Hearing Graham Sunis say he can't handle the physicality and intensity of a game is not a thing I would have expected to ever hear. Do you want to hear the, uh, the best quote ever? That yes. involves Graham Sunes. Mm. So, um, in 1991, Red Star. Oh, Red, I know what it is. I know what it on, is. <laughs> on the way to winning the European Cup, they faced Rangers, managed by Graham Sunes. Mm. Sunes sent his assistant manager, Walter Smith, to go and watch Red Star Belgrade in Belgrade and send him back a scouting report. And the scouting report Walter Smith sent back was, "We're." F- oh, I don't know that one. That was the scouting report he sent back. And I will beep that out, but I think you can guess what I said. You can guess what Walter Smith said to Graham Sunes. I think Smith just watched this team and said, There's, there, I don't know what to do. There is no way we can beat this team. And I think afterwards, Sunes said, they obviously beat them over two legs, mm-hmm. right? Red Star beat them over two legs. And Sunes said, yeah, we used to be in the best team in Scotland. We were used to having the ball. They just had the ball the whole time and there was nothing we could do. The one that I thought you were uh, referring to is, yeah, so they go, uh, Red Star going, win, win the first leg away, and then there's the return one, and sell, uh, excuse me, Rangers, definitely Rangers, are not prepared for the atmosphere, like, and the intensity of that atmosphere and the flares and everything. And, uh, Ponchev said of them, uh, he said, like, their players went pale, and then he pauses and then says, well, they were pale anyway, but they went yes. paler. <laughs> which, yeah. which I find amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've talked about the front four, okay? Yeah. So it's uh, Panchev is the striker. Mm-hmm. Um, Savicevic is this fast, dribbly, creative number 10. Prozanetsky is this absolute genius who can sort of... He's not quick, but he can dribble, get past you. He'll always find a way. He can always spot the pass. Binic is the pace down the right. Behind that, you've got Mihailovic, who people will probably know because he went and played for Inte, became quite famous playing in Serie A, and Jugovic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
both of these guys could cover ground, could do a bit of defending, could get stuck in. And Mihailovic especially had a magical left foot. Like he could hit shots from distance with his left foot. He could like fire passes in from distance that like would put Panchev in behind. The scariest thing to me about this team, when they have a free kick, you would often have Mihailovic and Prozanetsky, left foot and right foot, standing over it. And both of them could beat you. It's like having yep. two Beckhams on your team and one of them is left footed. And, and they often did as well. <laughs> they did find a way to beat you on free kicks and long range shots as well. Uh, yeah, you've got you've got some decent ball players, some decent uh, scores of goals on this team. Decent scores of goals. Yeah. Um, we don't want to get too much into the defense, um, if you don't mind. But the one man worth talking about is uh, definitely uh, is it Midrag? Uh, you said it's Bella Didic. Uh, I, I will go with yours, Bello, Bello Dedici. Is that what you said? Bello Dedici. I like yours, yeah. Uh Yeah, who uh, does play for, for Stel Bucharest. We're going to talk about him again in a moment. Plays for this team because he flees Romania, has to do the one-year suspension. Uh, but like, it's really funny to hear him discussed because he's talked of as this like, hard man who would win stuff, and he was the organizer. And then he's just a, he just seems like a very sweet fella, I got to say. He also is a magnificent footballer. He reminds also me a that. little bit, um, like not Beckenbauer's Beckenbauer, right? Yeah. But when they say that Beckenbauer changed the libero position, they're talking about players like Bella Didici, mm-hmm. who would do the same thing a few years later. I mean, this is like 15 years later, right? Yeah. But he is sweeping up for Red Star Belgrade, bringing the ball out of the back, and then sort of uh, making passes between the lines to initiate attacks, right? He's getting involved in central midfield. This is the type of change that Beckenbauer brought about, and it's players like Bella Didici that you would see in the next 20 years or so. Yeah, I, I like that, like, the way you could sort of look at, like, roughly the spine of the team. Like, you mentioned Binich is is fast. Like, he's, like, he's quick, and then you've got Panchev, who's the Cobra, who's, like, smart. And you've got Mihailovic, who's, the like, the battler versus, I think, Jugovic I saw described as the engine. And then here yeah. you've got uh, Bella Didici, who's, like, the technical one, and then uh, Nadowski, his partner, would be the more, like, tackler physical one. And they yeah, kind of... The yeah, the like I like that sort of pairing throughout the te- the spine of the team. It makes a lot of sense how that can be very uh, effective. And then the question is, why haven't more people heard of this team? And the answer is, it's the same reason that we didn't include them, right? Is that mm-hmm. they don't have a sustained period of success because between the semi final and the final, civil war breaks out. Yeah in Yugoslavia, right? So mm-hmm. they play the final. They beat Marseille in the final, playing very defensive football and then winning on penalties, by the way. Um, Did you see that thing, by the way, about how they won penalties? The thing I saw was that in the Yugoslav uh, yeah. top division, every drawn game went to penalty shootout yeah. so that the coach knew, we're going to win this because we yeah. like our players have yeah. played penalty shootouts all season. They made all five. <laughs> and he wasn't wrong. <laughs> he right? was not. Did they score five? Yeah, yep. so, yeah that's a, a, a smart play. A smart play. Mm. Civil war breaks out between the semi-final and the final. This team never comes back together again, right? No. Because players like either go abroad because of the civil war, or they uh, go and like live in their new their new country because, mm-hmm. like you know, Croatia and Serbia are established as independent nations. This is a team that never got to stay together. This could have been Yugoslavia could have been a magnificent national team throughout the nineties. I mean, would have been, yeah. Red Star Belgrade could have been one of the dominant. Uh, European teams um, of the early 90s but this team is pulled apart straight after winning the European Cup yeah because this is another team who because they're behind the Iron Curtain they they are able to hold on to their all not their players exactly Yugoslavia is a little different right it's not yeah. quite behind the Iron Curtain Tito's a, uh, a politician who he kind of straddled both right he wasn't with the West but he also deliberately wasn't a Soviet satellite 
Yes, but what I'm getting at is that they weren't allowed to leave until they were older. So basically you yes. had a team that was like forced forced to stay together in this league where everybody was kind of forced to stay there. And then once the entire league breaks up, because now they all go play for their different countries, as you said, like you don't even have the league in place anymore, but you also don't have those sort of structures that would keep everybody playing and thus keep that league strong and thus keep yeah. more young players coming through. It kind of breaks apart in a number of different ways from like physically to mentally to uh, I guess just sort of like from a bureaucracy standpoint as well so let's move on to their opponent sure. in this play it's basically the eastern european playoff is what yeah. we're going with here right and it's the stour bucharest team from uh romania that won the european cup in 1986 beating barcelona and coached by terry venables in the 1986 final yeah um, but as i said also went back to another semi-final the a uh, couple of years later or the year after and went back to the final and lost in 1989 they also went undefeated in the romanian league for 119 domestic games from 86 to 89 setting a world record um i have slight misgivings about how this team is put together because Mm -hmm. weren't they um kind of taken over by the dictator ceausescu's eldest son yeah, and, and they're the army team as well. It's worth noting that we have Red Star versus essentially Star Bucharest, and the star they're referring to is also red. So we basically have Red Star versus Red Star. Yeah. Um, and yes, that, that does inform, I think, how you're able to, to build the team and maybe help them continue to be dominant. So I guess well, we can't hold that against them, right? No. It's not the players' fault how the team was. I mean, we didn't together. hold it against Honved, and that's the same thing. So yeah. That's true, right. And you can also argue their European success, like their European Cup success. Um, that's not like even though the team has been put together through essentially some sort of dictatorship means um, mm. that the dictator can't influence the results against, for example, Barcelona, unless Terry Venables was a secret Romanian uh, communist. I don't think he was. I don't think he was. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this team then. Um, sure. Who do you like, Taylor? Who do you like on this team? This Romanian well, team, a- Stour Bucharest. There's a man, when I started doing the research, who I believe I messaged you and said, somebody on this team I'm referring to is Roma- Romanian Roy Keane, and I want you to guess who it is. Do you have a guess? I'm really certain that the player you're referring to as Romanian Roy Keane is Tudor Roy Stoica. <gasps> it is not. Wow. Interesting. All right. Okay. I don't even know Tudor Roy Stoica. Tudor Roy Stoica is the captain of this team. He's the uh-huh. captain of Stour Bucharest. He was suspended for there the 1986 final. So I thought you'd spotted the narrative similarity with Roy Keane being suspended for Man United's no. 99 final. But when you watch, I watched a couple of the uh, semi-final and earlier round games. Uh, Stoica is the engine. He is up and down. He's chasing everybody down. He's starting passing moves. He's central to absolutely everything. I'd argue he is the Roy Keane of this team. And whoever you've picked out is the Nicky Butt of this team. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how I feel about that one, Sarah. Uh, mine was uh, uh, Baloney, Laszlo Baloney, number eleven, uh, playing in the middle because he is a playmaker and a passer, but also in that '86 final is just constantly leaving a foot in and then does that like what? It's just a game. Like he he can pass the ball and move and and do everything you want from a central midfielder, but then also just ruthlessly bring people down and have no issue about it. Fair enough. So, yeah, we'll say Bologna's at least a midfield enforcer in the Roy Keane mould. How about that? Sure, 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 sure. sure. All right. But either one can be Roy Keane. That's fine. Who else should we talk about with this one? Um, I think you, we've got to talk about Marius Lacatouche. Yeah, <laughs> the man with a helmet of hair, as I have the in my notes. The man with a helmet of hair. Yeah. Oh, my so goodness. So he played kind of striker, but like to drift into the mm-hmm. wings, right? Uh, Lacatouche is a guy I'd kind of heard of, but never really, never really watched. I would argue you could fire a ball at uh, Marius Lakatos from any angle and any height, and he would kill it dead and bring it down. 
he he does seem to have that ability certainly and i think again when you talk about like where these players are playing in the league they're playing in yes they probably have certain protections uh but like it does stand to reason that it's probably pretty physical because not only can he do that but he seems to be able to ride a challenge really well and i'm yes. guessing that's kind of reflective in their training and the league they're coming from because there's a lot of challenges being uh issued from this team but lakatoshi i think you're you're right that can handle the physicality because he has the technical ability to back it up and then his strike partner is a man named Victor Paturka, who's I think how you pronounce it, who is an absolute goal poacher. I watched quite <laughs> a few different Stour games, and all of them involve Paturka just popping up in the box yep. and finishing chances that Lakatush, um, like either sets up for him or is involved in. It's this beautiful partnership where Lakatush does all the creative stuff and Victor Paturka buries the ball. Yeah, my, my, when I, when I do these, I tend to try to get like sort of a starting 11 with some of the tactics in the formation they would have played. And like I use the arrows to designate where they would be or the movements. I've got a lot of arrows moving all over for Lakatouche. For Petorcha, I've just got left and right, basically. Yeah, it's all about just being in the box and yep. being, being ready for what comes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also worth noting, the way the Style Bucharest team plays, it's actually quite pleasing on the eye. It's a lot of like quick passing, moving the ball forward, right? Um, and I found um, a quote from the coach that was in which, training. Which game did you watch, by the way? Because we watched different games. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing you watched the final, right? Which yeah. wasn't that exciting. I watched them play Anderlecht in the, the semifinal. They won a 2-1, uh, sorry, 3-1 over two legs. Um, I watched the second leg, which they won 3-0 at home. Yeah. So you may have, maybe that was like, you got the two-legged one where they knew they needed to win or knew they needed the result. I may have gotten the final, which is maybe not always the best soccer you're going to see. Yeah, I think they went on penalties, right? Oh, definitely they went on penalties. And they I'm sit sure very we'll, deep. Yeah, They'll talk about their goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they probably defended more than they more than they usually did, right? Because mm-hmm. not every week you play Barcelona. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I got to see the more exciting version of Stavo Bucharest. Um, and what I saw was a team that when they get the ball, like start, starting with Bella Didici, uh, after he brings it out, it would be like a vertical pass and a layoff and a vertical pass and a layoff. And like, and then it would like, obviously the angles get wider as you get closer to the opposition goal because they're mm-hmm. defending more and a vertical pass and a layoff. And then, then a bit of dribbling from Lakatush and then eventually a few more passes and you would uh, get the ball to uh, Paterka to score. That's the, so, that's what I saw from Stable Bucharest. I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that you watched that game then because what what I really did see in that in the final was like a lot of physical chat. Like my, a lot of my notes are basically like, is there VAR? Because if so, this game is not finishing with eleven v eleven. I'll guarantee you that. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you saw that. So then my question is, we've talked a lot about like the technical players that Red Star had and how good some of their players were, how they're basically world class and could have played in a lot of other places. Did you see? at least some of that from Stau? Because I don't think I did as much, so I'm hoping that maybe you saw more. Only from Lakatush. Okay. Yeah, really. From from Lakatush, I saw it. I think he's... I don't think he gets in that Red Star team, to be honest. I think there's way too much talent, um, unless they're willing to maybe switch out Binic. Um, but like Savicevic and Prozanetsky, all those guys, I think they're better players than Lakatush, even though he's he's really, really good. The other guys, honestly, they just seemed really drilled mm-hmm. in, get the ball know where your teammate is, play the forward pass, he lays it off, know where the third man running is, he lays it off, and it was just quick, quick, quick like that. And it essentially yeah. looked like a well-drilled team of technically proficient players, but okay. n- only one or two of them are individually great. All right, I'm, yeah. I'm fine with that. Um, can one of those individually great people be Helmuth Dukadam? The goalkeeper? Uh-huh. It absolutely can. It absolutely can. Which thing which thing did you find fascinating about him? Because I would argue there are two really interesting things and they both kind of relate to the same thing, which I mean, is that penalty shootout. 
just the big statistic, right? Which is mm. that he saves every single Barcelona penalty kick, right? He saves four penalty kicks and there's no need for them to take a fifth because because uh, Stau have won the European Cup at that point. So the thing, you are correct. I also, his intensity is amazing. Did you see the part where the ball boy throws him a ball accidentally? No. After he makes like the third save, he's like doing his like, yes, I did it celebration. For some reason, a ball boy tosses him a ball. I don't know why. And it's as though he thinks it's a shot. He like swats it away in a panicked state. It's pretty amazing. But the other thing I learned from reading uh, Club Soccer 101 is that in the weeks leading up to that game, he had had pain in his, I believe, left arm that would kind of come and go, get really bad and then go away. But he didn't want to complain about it because he knew that if he complained about not being able to use his arm, he's not going to play in this game. So he plays, he makes those saves. I think two weeks later, has to be rushed to the hospital, has a blood clot, doesn't is able to keep the arm, but never plays again. I think he's now like an executive with the club, but basically this is it for him. He makes those saves, and then that's all she wrote. I had no idea. So that's why Lung is in goal for the, yeah. uh, the 1989 final. There wow. So this yeah. is kind of like the highlight and almost the end of Dukadam's career. Yeah, I mean, which is, I guess, if you have to go out prematurely like that, like, that's maybe a, a decent way to do it. Keep a clean sheet and save every penalty in the European yeah. Cup final to win Stadel Bucharest the, the trophy. Mm. Yeah, that's not bad at all. But now, <laughs> while we're on the topic for a moment, I did, did I also see photos of Franz Beckenbauer playing at a sling in some games? Because I feel like I did. Yes, I did too, yeah. <laughs> Goodness not, gracious. I have no idea what the story is there, but yeah. That is I insane. I think, I, he like, I think he had, like, a broken clavicle and played through it, I believe <laughs> is the story, which is, again, insane, because when you break clavicle i don't know if you know this daryl uh it hurts um, i think when you break anything it hurts um, <laughs> that's probably true so let's let's round out this team um, especially hearts we we mentioned earlier bella didici playing for red star belgrade in mm-hmm. the 1986 final he's playing for stauer bucharest yep that means that in 1991 he becomes the first player to ever win the european cup with two different teams this man is an absolute legend and, um, and no matter what he's advancing so i feel good about that yeah no matter what Beledici is at least getting through to the next game in the round of uh, 32 right yeah he's going through in the playoffs um the, the only other player i think worth talking about here is uh Gyorgi haji oh, not yeah. on the 1986 european cup winning mm-hmm. team but he joins soon after did you read the story of haji's transfer to style Bucharest? no so because they win the european cup um, Dynamo Kiev win the either the UEFA Cup or the Cup Winners Cup. So there was at the time. Oh, we still do it, don't we? The European Super Cup mm. was a big deal, right? So it was Stal Bucharest against Dynamo Kiev um, early the next season. Um, there's a talented young midfielder playing for a small Romanian team called Gheorghe Haji, right? So because Stal Bucharest um, really want to win this uh, this European Super Cup, they loan Haji for one game only, <laughs> right? They loan Haji for one game only. Stal Bucharest beat Dynamo Kiev, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. Actually, it's two Soviet teams playing each other, and it's towards the end of the Soviet regime, right? Um, Haji scores the winner in the Super Cup, and somehow his, con- his one-game loan contract turns into a permanent contract. Yeah, that makes sense. Again. So they, they essentially borrowed and then stole Georgi Haji uh, at Stal Bucharest. Yeah, but when a dictator does it, it's just for the good of the nation. <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. A <laughs> um, couple That's of the defenders worth shouting out. Um, Ilvan was a big right back who could sort mm-hmm. of knock you over. Bumbescu was the sort of ball winning centre back who partnered uh, Bello Didici. So he would mm-hmm. be like the uh, the Kaiser's cleaner equivalent <laughs> for Stal Bucharest is Bumbescu. Oh, and then and then there's also uh, Barbulescu out on the out on the yes. left back. I was confused for a moment. I was like Bumbescu. Oh, right, right, right. There's there's two very similar sounding names in there. So there you go. That's Stauer Bucharest. I guess uh-huh. Taylor and I have seen two sides of this team, right? I've seen the attacking side. You've seen the defensive side. 
But what happens when they go up against Red Star Belgrade of 1991? I think I think there are some some challenges in this one. I think some cards are probably issued. Although if it is like a Yugoslav official, I feel like maybe that balances things. Oh, that'd be too much. Maybe it's got to be like a Hungarian official. I don't know. But either way, I think maybe if you have somebody who's representative of like the, they're used to the physicality, maybe it does finish the, full strength. But I think official, it finishes. Maybe the official is from Moscow. Oh, no, because yeah, then he would favor the Bulgarian. It's tough. See, this is the, this is the roadway yeah. I went down. Um, uh, but I do think in the end it's Red Star going through, which I'm surprised by since we didn't even have them in the competition to begin. Same, but just the level of talent on this yeah. team. And honestly, it's partly it's knowing what these guys do after they leave Red Star. A lot of them have magnificent careers elsewhere, right? Yes. Like Prozanetsky goes and plays for like Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, Jugovic yeah. is in Serie A for a long time. Mihailovic is in Serie A with Inter. Savicevic plays for AC Milan um, uh, in Serie A and does really, really well. So these, these are all great players who just happen to be um, on a team that couldn't stay together. Um, and I think we already talked about like the technical level of Red Star is essentially superior to that of Stavo Bucharest, right? Yes. So I got distracted for a moment staring at my M- Milan lineup because I was trying to remember why I had written Savicevic's name down. It's because I wrote, a, I wrote the wrong team down. I wrote the one from 94 down. That's, <laughs> that's where he, he factors in. But yeah, I think just yeah for that level of talent. And then I, di- I did, from, from what I saw of them throughout that run in 1991 from Red Star, the way they're able to play home and away is, is really similar. In some ways, it reminds me of Jock Steen, like not wanting to be defensive at all. Not that they're just all out attack, but that it didn't feel like we got that sort of modern practicality away and then we play our game at home or what have you. It was just sort of like, this is what we do and this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it well and we're going to win. Yeah, this is a team that I think presses Bayern Munich, right? In uh, one of the uh, one yeah. of the early round games in nineteen or sorry, later round games in nineteen ninety one, and mm-hmm. Bayern Munich had terrified and shocked, but they uh, they they can't handle the pressing um, of Red Star Belgrade and score an own goal, I think. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, there's. I, I think the if nothing else, the level of competition they they went through to get to the final in ninety one is higher than what uh, Stalbuk arrest do. Yes. So congratulations to Red Star, commiserations to Stout, but then also commiserations to both of them, because either way, one of them would have had to play Arrigo Saki's Milan team. You think this is the best team of these three? Uh, yes. I think so, too. But let's not make this a <laughs> foregone conclusion. That's let's not. talk about Arrigo Saki's <laughs> Milan, which wins the European Cup uh, back-to-back in, what, 89 and 90, I believe. They do. But, Daryl, can I make a suggestion? Yeah, what's that? Before we do that, can we talk about Manscaped for a moment? Oh, I'd love to talk about Manscaped. <laughs> Would you? Yeah, let's do that. Then by all means. Um, yes. Uh, basically, Manscaped, we've talked about them many, many times. They offer products designed for the, uh, the below-the-belt grooming south of the border. They are Manscaped, but it could be either way. You, you could, I think, Mike, there, many people could want to use uh, that trimmer if they so chose. Have you been using that trimmer? Uh, <laughs> I haven't in a while, but when I did, there were no issues, which is always nice. That's good. So if, if things uh-huh. ever get out of control again, Taylor, you can use that trimmer one oh more time. We've taken a turn. You'll be changing the grooming game with your perfect package <laughs> 3.0 essentials kits. This is the perfect tools for your family jewels. It features the lawnmower 3.0, which is a waterproof cordless trimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in, the, in that kit is a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your man- landscaping routine. 
Uh, and I mentioned the rain earlier here in Richmond, but we are getting to the point where it then becomes 90 degrees with like 80% humidity. And, uh, you know, it can get a little bit hot. It can be a little bit sweaty. They also have the Crop Preserver, which is an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer. We do put our deodorant on our armpits. This is solid logic here. There's another area that tends to kind of get a little bit smelly. Maybe you put a deodorant down there and that deals with that as well. Keep everything nice and fresh. Keep everything nice and fresh. For a limited time, um, if you subscribe to Manscaped, you get two, not one, but two free gifts, including the Shed travel bag, which has a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs so to put it another way you get a free pair of pants <laughs> so you get those gifts and you can also get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code tss20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code tss20 your partner your body and everything you've got below the belt will thank <laughs> you now let's talk about AC Milan, shall we? Okay so this is the famous Arigosaki team of mm. uh, of Milan Rigo Saki famously, I keep using the word famous, sorry, the, uh, famously takes the job and is not immediately respected by everybody, right? Because he does not have a track record as a player. He's a guy who's just coached at the lower levels and is suddenly given the Milan job by Silvio Berlusconi, comes in, introduces what are revolutionary tactics at the time. Everyone's confused. Turns out he was right all along because this team goes and wins two European Cups. They do indeed. He does sort of prove them wrong and then maybe proves them right later on. <laughs> Why does he prove them right later on? <laughs> Just that it doesn't sort of work out for him in the latter portion of his career. But for that period of Milan, it's going pretty well. Uh, I did forget that sort of criticism when I was reading about him. And Jonathan Wilson, I think, starts his chapter about Saki with, like, it's titled, like, a man who wasn't a horse. And right. I did not remember that quote and therefore did not know what that chapter was referring to. And you just put it together. So thank you for that, buddy. Yeah, so the quote that people um, don't, don't know, if you don't, sorry, mm-hmm. if you don't know, the quote mm-hmm. is that he was challenged on his lack of, like, high-profile playing career and how can you manage a team of stars when you've never been a star yourself. And he essentially says, I didn't know to be a jockey you needed to have been a horse. <laughs> it still makes me laugh, even though, I've, even though I knew it was coming. My next question for you, um, as a way to talk about this team for a moment, is how much do you think Jack Steen would have liked Arigo Saki? Ooh, I don't know, because this is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. This team is talked about as an attacking team, yeah. and I always think of them as just having a relentless defensive plan with really good attacking players. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. That's, that's why I'm sort of confused, because they have these moments where you see, I mean, the strike partnership alone can combine for like six million goals. Yeah. And so you, you do then think like, oh, yeah, this team's just incredibly attacking and all out. And I think it's like, they're certainly attacking. They're certainly more attacking than many of the other Italian sides. Are they this free-flowing, we're playing a, a 2-4-4 formation? No, they are not. They're not. Okay, so let's give the rundown. This Milan sure. team um, under Arrigo Sacchi plays a really tight 4-4-2. Yeah. Right? And Saki's big plan is to keep the team tight and compact and play a really aggressive um, pressing system when the other team has the ball and a, a terrifying offside trap um, if they do manage to get over the halfway line um, and start attacking you. When they go uh, yeah, forward, sorry. they've got, I think it's worth ringing out the names because that's what people will recognize. Rude Hullit and Marco Van Basten are the, the two strikers. Van Basten is like the goal scoring number nine. Uh, Rude Hullit as the bit more roaming, creative uh, number 10. And along with Frank Rijkaard as the number eight box-to-box midfielder, this is essentially um, 
eight Italians and the three best Dutch players. That is the setup <laughs> at Milan, right? Eight Italians and the three best Dutch players. In- included in those Italians are two of the greatest defenders of all time. Franco Baresi as the centre-back and Paolo Maldini um, as the left-back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you've got uh, Costa Carta in there, who I grew up knowing from the FIFA games. But I remember even just from FIFA, knowing he was very good. And then when I watched him in real life, I was like, oh, yeah, no, he's as good as the FIFA version. Yeah. That makes sense. All right, we've been going through the thing of like, you know, the, yeah. the Kaiser's cleaner. I would say yeah. Costa Carta is Beres's hitman. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't mean that as a mafia reference just because yeah. it's an Italian team I really think of it as like Costa Curta's the muscle right yeah. he will, mm-hmm. he's not a bad footballer at all but he's the guy that's going to knock you over and win the ball whereas Beresi is more of the uh, I mean I think it's fair to call him like a sweeper libero type person mm-hmm. even though this team absolutely does not play with a sweeper uh, because it plays with this really tight off sideline I have him as Captain Organizer, which is a less yeah. popular uh, character than Captain America, but Captain Organizer is still important. <laughs> I mean, I think of him as like a Beckenbauer who doesn't get as far forward because he's like more, more positionally disciplined. Yeah, that checks out to me. <laughs> um, so have you seen the videos of the Milan offside trap? Uh, yes, it's incredible. So could it's, you it's, please describe it for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, I can because there, there are so many things that like – like you we know nowadays of like yeah offside trap right you step the high line like uh, yeah we know how that works and it's really fun to go back and watch like these things as they're developing like when you see the dutch hunting in packs like it literally is like eight of them just swarming one dude and here when we talk about a trap they are stepping my friend yeah. <laughs> they are when that ball i think it's basically as soon as the ball is outside of the 18 and going backwards they are sprinting forward to try to catch out the defense and that's where i think that's probably why you don't see saki referred to as this like defensive team or this milan team being defensive because even though they're incredibly organized to be able to do that high line it's a gamble it's a risk and you can easily yeah. get caught and if you do you're going to concede some goals so they they don't concede that many but they concede probably more than was the acceptable italian number but it's the aggressive sort of like oh they're literally sprinting 15 yards forward because you passed the ball back eight yards like they're, so, they go for so it so tightly choreographed and yeah. coordinated they mm-hmm. know what the trigger is right they all do it at the same time they all go out full tilt and they somehow keep a straight line as yeah. they're sprinting forward it is like it is an absolute masterpiece of organization i am terrified about what drilling went into that because <laughs> yeah, it right? cannot have been fun uh, no it probably was not fun um, at all it's really interesting to have players like Maldini's a younger man at this point right so you, you know Maldini's the famous Milan player who plays for like 25 years he's more in his early stages as a player at this point he's only been on the team like four or five years Baresi's kind of an old head at this point. He's, you know, he's mm. been around a little bit. Um, these are guys who could have refused to just do this intense drilling, but they did it and their reward was two European Cups. Yeah, it's a decent reward. Yeah. It's a decent reward. But it's just, it, it is, if people haven't seen it, it's really fun to go and just see the, like, almost, like, at times, like, suicidally reckless. Like, let's go! <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, works, it's not. Because right? your point, yeah, exactly. They keep tracking people. Um, high risk, mm-hmm. high reward. High risk, That's, high reward, I would call th- it. Yeah, that's the thing is like is it's a thing that looks like just this insane gambit. And yet if it keeps working at a certain point, it's like, oh, it's not just happening and they happen to be pulling it off. Like if you if it works nine out of 10 times or like 19 out of 20 times, it means that there's more than just chance to this equation. And if you'll indulge me, I do want to go deep on the greatness of Paolo Maldini, because this team is when he sort of i'll just check back in in 20 minutes well (laughs) well, stop me if i go too long but this is where maldini is at his sort of athletic peak right because people forget that maldini we remember him as an older player when he was young 
He was rapid and he was physical. That's what made him such a good defender. So I was really, um, when I started watching footage, I think I saw a game against Real Madrid and I was really ready to see, okay, is Maldini all he's cracked up to be in the late 80s? Um, I saw the right winger go past him and I thought, oh no, my man just got destroyed on the right wing. Somehow Maldini takes a few strides, catches up, steps across the winger. So he steps between the winger and the ball and just executes a tight little turn. And Maldini is on his way back up the field with the ball. Absolutely imperious at left back was Paolo Maldini. Uh, I'm, I'm going to write good in the margins of my notebook. Is that cool? That, that's equally accurate. Paolo Maldini, good. Got yeah. it. Cool. Yes, I would agree with that too. I, I think he, he's decent. He's not bad. So yeah, keep an eye on Palomardini at left back if you ever look at this team. Um, and then, obviously, Hullit and Van Basten is what it's yeah. all about up front. Rude Hullit especially, um, when Milan are pressing, I didn't realise the incredible work rate um, yeah. and like terrorising that Rude Hullit would do of opposition teams when they had the ball coming out of the back. He, 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 it's a little bit Labrador in that like as soon as he's done putting out one fire, he's like, okay, we're next. Like yeah. He never isn't looking for a place to run, for a space to occupy, for people to put under pressure. I don't think I could ever even imagine being as physically fit as him. I feel very good about including Rude Hullet in my Big Hair 11 team that we drafted yeah. a while back. <laughs> I want to say he's the first famous dreadlocked player. I can't think of a player before Rude Hullet who had big dreadlocks and was really famous. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah? So that makes me think that he's even more imposing because of it, right? Because he's six foot three. He can dribble at you um, uh-huh. at pace. He can close you down when you've got the ball. Um, and he's got these big dreadlocks. He must seem like, at the time, like this larger-than-life figure. I can see why he was... I mean, he was also the most expensive player in the world, I believe, at this point, when Milan bought him from PSV. So, Rude Hullet really was like the star of world football at this point. Yeah, and then, and then the issue, though, is that you can like triple team him if you want but then all they have left is this guy named marco van basten oh <laughs> like, marco it's van ridiculous basten. he the, so i don't know how to describe marco van basten i think the number one thing is technique right everything Score seems is the greatest goal of all time so That's clean what I just got and efficient the greatest what of all time goal he's the, the greatest goal off of the all post time. come on <laughs> that's, yes. the, that's like one of my favorite goals I remember downloading that when you could download video clips off of like Napster and I remember yeah. watching that in the Watergraphs Maya I don't even know what that is but I remember the guy saying it over and over and over again as he scored that bike <laughs> so good so good Marco Van Basten so many great volleys from Van Basten mm-hmm. and also just like you know one on one with the keeper he obviously just technique puts it puts it around the keeper bottom corner all that kind of classic goal scoring uh, stuff I'm almost running out of ways to describe great goal scorers because we've talked about um, so many today it's the especially of this era i think because it's the short shorts and the long socks it's like the swivel hips that gets me with both van basten and hullet yeah the way they're able to like be facing one way but their hips and legs are facing the other almost it's like you can you can see more of the swivel because of the tight yes yes and so it's like i think it's the the attack itself is so based on like fluidity and moving the ball quickly and like one touch passing vertical to get that ball forward that then if that's the system and then you've got two tall long led guys who are also playing on a swivel it's just this like weird fluid swiveling team with also these weird fluid swiveling attackers it all works really well (laughs) together aesthetically and then a couple of other players worth picking out. Uh, Frank Rijkaard just going box to box to box to yeah. box to box the whole time. Yeah. Um, and Carlo Ancelotti, Dude, who obviously most people are familiar ridiculous. with as a coach. I didn't realize the type of player he was. I think I'd got him confused and thought he was a right back. Ancelotti's like a really um, intelligent regista type, right? He can yeah. uh, sit deep. He'll fill in for Baresi if Baresi steps out. Um, I, you can see Ancelotti, the manager, being formed while Ancelotti's playing. You can. You can also see Ancelotti, the manager, like weirdly look like there's um, 
the de-aging technology. It, I couldn't get over it. Like, I know I'm just talking about a younger version of a person, but, like, if you see him, he scores a goal, and when he runs away to celebrate, it looks for all the world like they took current Carlo Ancelotti's face and just put it on a young person's body as they run yeah. off to celebrate. It's so strange. I think it's because he already has the, like, slightly jowly face, even yeah. though he's in, like, incredible incredible physical form. It just it, it totally confused me for a moment of, like, what? Is there special effects going on? So he How do be, they do that with the old Carlo Ancelotti? He should be in a three-and-a-half-hour film directed by Martin Scorsese. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> called, um, called The Eyebrow Man. <laughs> I would watch that movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, the I mean, Eyebrows I, Man, I think it, what it should the be. The Eyebrows Man, yeah. I do love this Milan team. I, I mean, I yep. love the pressing. Um, I think it's really effective. I like the um, not commitment to possession. It's more like we'll move the ball forward quickly, and if we lose it, we, we can win it back, so don't worry about it, right? So that's why you said a lot of vertical passes and layoffs. If it went wrong, it didn't matter because they'd get it back. Mm-hmm. And then I love the bravery of the offside trap yeah. and the sort of high quality of everybody across that, that back four. We haven't even mentioned Roberto Donadoni, who was like attacking midfielder yeah. slash winger who could do you some damage as well. This Milan team, two European Cups in a row. Does it, it beat Red Star? Uh, um, I yes, it does. Uh, before before <laughs> I explain why, um, I, one question for you though, because you tend to be better like with the historianness of things, uh, at least uh, like in terms of tactical approaches. Is Saki the one who first pioneered the like twenty five yards between your lines, or did that come from elsewhere? Because as far as I understand, I think that was a sort of dictate that he established. He's at least the one that makes it famous. He's the one that... I mean, I've I've actually got the quote here, right? Um, If you're far away from your teammates, you're not a team. Um, So he wants the defensive line to be no more than 25 metres, which is about 27 yards, away from the attacking line. So 25 metres between your defensive line and your attacking line, that is a very tight, compact team, right? That makes it... It doesn't matter that you only have two central midfielders. You're not getting overwhelmed because the defence is right there and the attackers are right there. And then I wanted to ask you this. For people who are less familiar with this team, who maybe aren't going to go w- back and watch them play, but are looking for sort of like a modern equivalent, do, y- do you feel like Atletico Madrid are a f- like similar-ish representation, or are they too defensive and not enough like attacking? I would argue they're too defensive. Honestly, mm-hmm. the closest thing tactically is Leicester City 2015 to 2016. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. This is just like the absolute premium version of Leicester City, right? Instead of Jamie Vardy and Okazaki, you've got Marco van Basten and Ruud Hullit. Yeah, that's it. And then would N'Golo Kante be Frank Vickard or vice versa? Yeah, that, that's about right. Yeah, I think you think of Kante as maybe more of a defensive player, but he does yeah. he does go up and down and get involved, right? So yeah, Kante yeah. would be okay. right there. Right, there we go. Um, Ancelotti would be a very premium version of Danny Drinkwater. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so with that said, I think the reason why I have Milan going forward is because uh, we should note that they destroy Stau Bucharest in the game that they do actually play. These yeah. two teams meet each other. And then I would argue that Red Star are at least somewhat informed by Saki and Milan and like the pressing of, of the Dutch and everything like that. But it, it feels like they, they sort of come out of that mode of like, oh, we can like sit back, but then have this really quick attack and kind of move the ball quickly, get forward fast, be technical enough to make things happen. And so I almost kind of go back to the original of the team that destroyed the one team and sort of maybe inspired the other. I feel like they're going to be able to pull it off, but then they do just have the, the kind of superior firepower in that front, uh, front two. I, yeah, I think that Milan win this because of Hullit and Van Basten. I think mm-hmm. there's, it, it's really hard to come up with a better pairing, right? They're national team partners. They're 
uh, their club partners. They're both really intelligent. Like Hullet is super smart about like positioning. He'll come deeper and yeah. get the ball. Um, he's also like a weapon just like, because he's six foot three. Sometimes you can just fire the ball up there and he'll flick it on for Van Basten to be running onto, which is really basic. But when it's Hullet and Van Basten doing it, it's not Sunday league, it's Serie A, right? It's really yeah. um, high level. So I think Milan win this essentially because of those two. But I do like, I would love to see what happens when Milan try to squeeze the space between the lines, right? Which is what that 25 metres between defence and attack is all about. But then you've got players like Savicevic and Prozanetsky who can dribble through tight spaces. I think it would be, I think they get through more than once. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I think I think Red Star, especially since they're the ones who are going to be hosting this game, I think they're definitely getting a goal. And I think Milan yeah. are going to have to deal with some atmospheric issues before they're able to kind of find a way back. So I think Red Star take the lead, and then maybe Saki makes some adjustments since that's what he does for the 1990 European Cup final. So maybe that feels relevant here. He makes some adjustments, they come out, they get two goals, they win 2-1. The, hey, I'm going to describe the Red Star goal. This is the last time we'll see them in this tournament, so I'm going to describe mm-hmm. the Red Star goal, right? Okay, they win the ball at midfield. And they counterattack. Um, Savicevic is dribbling forward. He eventually uh, runs into Tassati and Costa Curta, and he has to turn around and lay the ball back to Robert Prozanetsky, right? That's Milan's cue to step forward and spring the offside trap, right? So they're thinking that Prozanetsky is going to try a through ball to Panchev and they'll catch Panchev offside because Panchev is up there and he's behind the defense. Instead, Prozanetsky drags it back, does a step over and dribbles around Alessandro Costa-Curta. Prozanetsky's in on goal and bends it, bends it around Gali into the top corner. It's like I was there. It's like I was there, though, if you evade the enforcer, I have to believe that's coming back to you doubly so later on in the game. Oh, I didn't say he doesn't end the game with bruises, but he, okay. does, he does pull <laughs> off that magnificent moment. Robert Prozanetsky um, embarrassing the Milan offside trap by dribbling through it after they've all stepped forward. But I'll say this, man. We when I texted you uh, like before we started, like even really heavily researching. I think I said like so, so it's Bayern and Milan. Like, should we just call it a day? <laughs> uh, and and I think reading a lot more about that Red Star team, it's a lot closer than I thought it would. Yes, have been. and oh. I'm really really happy that we did end up including them. It's. I mean, it's. A sh- I don't think they ever actually met. And they're so close in era, right? Yeah. If we could just like rewind Red Star a little bit and get them, we could get this game happening, right? And there's no crossover with players like there is with uh, Bella Dici for Red Star mm-hmm. and, and Stauer. Yeah, this is a game I would pay good money to see right now. Let's talk so to those 12 monkey scientists and see if we can right. get it going. But thank you, Eldon. Uh, I, I do appreciate, appreciate that one. Yes. Uh, and I'm glad that they were involved. But commiserations to Eldon, commiserations to Red Star and to Stab Bucharest. But it will be uh, Milan of Saki advancing to the next round. So well done to Milan and to Bayern. Um, we still haven't profiled every team, right? There's lots of uh, no. games still to go. I think we're halfway through. We're halfway through in the Champions Champions Cup of uh-huh. History, sponsored by the mean scientists from 12 Monkeys. <laughs> Anything else to add, Taylor, before we, before we close this I can't down? believe you came up with the weirdest reference in this entire show. <laughs> that, that, is, that never happens. Wait till next week. Oh, Wait boy. till next week. <laughs> next week is sponsored by the people who froze Austin Powers. <laughs> Jesus. All right, let's, let's wrap it up because I realize this has gone long. We don't want to be trying people's <laughs> patience. Taylor Rockwell, mid-giggle, I'm going to say oh, thank man. you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening. Come back tomorrow and you'll hear Allocation Disorder talking about Major League Soccer's plan to return. 